It's funny. Academics always try to polish. We use fancy, we use language which reflects culture and status. But yeah, Luther was a shit poster and he was a master at it. I don't even mean that in the abstract. You know, a good chunk of his memes were, you know, peasants pooping in the papal tira, the sign of authority, or it was them, you know, flatulating fancy word of saying farting in the general direction. Or one is called the birth of the papal curia, which was wildly popular. And it's demons birthing, aka pooping out clerics and a Medusa figure suckling another cleric. So he was masterful at saying what's the most important locus of control and what's the image that best represents that. And then let me just use scatology, use pooping and farting and like vile and profane acts as an ideological weapon, super intentionally. All right, what's going on, everybody? This is the Other Life Podcast, and I am Justin Murphy. So this week we are speaking with Josh Rosenthal. This is an amazing episode. Josh is an academic historian. He specializes in the study of the European Renaissance, specifically the wars of religion around that time. But he's very much like me. He decided to exit the institutions to pursue greater freedom and opportunities on the outside, as it were. And today, the outside is crypto. So he has really impressive hypotheses around the relationship between or the analogy between the European Renaissance and the crypto revolution that we're seeing today. So we spend this podcast talking all about that. We go into great detail on the political implications, the social and religious implications of the Renaissance, and then how that maps on to the current situation as we're watching the crypto revolution unfold in our own society today. So this was incredibly insightful, incredibly rich with historical, political, social, and religious ideas. So I just loved it. I think you're really going to love it. This is very on brand for my audience. And also at the at the end, we talk a lot about how we both think that crypto is going to revolutionize the production of intellectual work. We try to think through together how exactly for academics or creators or intellectuals, whatever you want to call yourself or you want to call me or whatever. Um, we just are trying to figure out how crypto exactly is going to change the game? What are the patterns and practices that we think are going to emerge in the near term, also in the longer term? So I think if you're an academic or a creator or intellectual or whatever, I think you'll find a lot of stimulation and inspiration here. I think my podcast is actually one of the podcasts that is really farthest out on the avant-garde when it comes to this question in particular. So it's becoming a real focus for the podcast. And I think this is a really, really great episode on that front. So I think you're all going to love this. Please enjoy. Let me get out of the way now and we will get onto the show. All right. So Josh, you did a very interesting episode on the Bankless podcast where you gave this very interesting story around how the European Renaissance has a lot of lessons for us thinking through the crypto revolution that's going on right now. You note some very strong parallels, namely at a very high level, the story seems to be that at the time of the European Renaissance, there were these large, rigid power structures, very centralized. The European Renaissance represents a series of technological innovations, which fundamentally disrupt the, the political power of the traditional centralized powers. And it causes this flourishing of all kinds of decentralized energies, which also lead to different types of conflicts, namely the, the wars of religion, which you're something of an expert in. So I want to unpack this a little bit. I think we should start by just recapitulating that basic story for people who maybe did not catch the Bankless podcast. And since you're an academic, uh, just like myself, and you know, we, we both have, we both have, uh, you know, 
experience in academia and kind of took that up to a certain point before deciding to exit for, you know, the, the, the greener pastures of, uh, of freedom on the outside. Um, but because we have that kind of commonality, I think we want to double click on some of the different parts of your story and, and bring a little bit more kind of academic, uh, expertise to some of these questions around the, the comparison between crypto and the European Renaissance. So if you'd be so kind, would you just briefly catch up people who have not seen the bankless podcast and what at a high level is this basic uh, you know, analogy between the European Renaissance and the crypto revolution today. Yeah, sure. And that that bankless episode was great. And those guys are fantastic. And there's transcripts of it in 10 languages now from Chinese to Arabic to Turkish or what have you. And so people can can look at that. Um, I guess I should say just full disclosure as a repentant, you know, former academic, I just have to uh, give a disclaimer that all these constructs are heuristic, meaning they're just models. It's not history itself. So this is just one model, which I think has pretty high explanatory power in terms of in terms of not just unpacking, but being able to predict what happens next. I just want to make sure that I don't believe this is history. I believe it's a good explanatory rubric for it. But you can think of history ticking and talking back and forth between aggregation and centralization into hierarchy and then unwinding you know, into decentralization. And usually aggregation and centralization and hierarchy is, is you know, hierarchical. Um, in the late Middle Ages, if we go back to that period, you know, church-owned the, it wasn't just religious, it was religious political. The, the papacy was hierarchical at a fundamental level in, in terms of their divine cosmology. The political apparatus in Europe was, you know, Holy Roman Empire, which is superimposed, and these two hierarchies were, were mutually reinforcing. The religious was largely in this position of dominance after, after uh, uh, you know, the Pope had forced the Holy Roman Empire to, uh, to repent and ask for forgiveness not necessarily because of personal religious belief the way we'd think of it today, but because of all of those lines of economics and fealty were predicated upon this religious fabric. And so by excommunicating, he essentially took control of the political apparatus. And there were, there were documentary reasons for that as well. Things like the donation of Constantine was when the Roman Empire had given arms over to the papacy. And so you have this fundamental hierarchy, which is political and religious, and they sort of blend together Religious is probably in the dominant position, partially because they controlled the discourse or the ideology or the, the way that they articulated this, their worldview. And when I say that it was aggregated, I usually think of two lines. One would be value and the other would be information. And so in terms of value, value at the time was, was wealth expressed through land and animals and you know, sometimes precious metals and what have you. And so a church is, you know, owns a third the land in Europe at the time. And part of that is because you're playing this dynastic game over centuries, right? If you, if you leave a tenth of your land to you know, the institution over 10 generations, it starts to accumulate, right? Um, and in terms of expressing that, that, that value, it wasn't just aggregated, but also the permissions around what you could do. Your mental world or your Overton window was, was formulated by, you know, usually you were a farmer, you weren't able to read, you had never left your land, the idea of moving more than five miles away would never have entered your head, your father was a farmer, his father was a farmer, perhaps you might, you know, be a guild member, but you'd still have, it's a very small percentage, you'd still have to be permission to do that. And so they controlled, you know, value at a fundamental level, you know, at that eve of the later Middle Ages. And also information was the other access. How would you how would you have access to know about other possibilities, other lands, other opportunities, but also how would you have access to the, the contracts which controlled the assets that you had at that point in time, right? These would, be, these would be contracts, and they're not just written in Latin versus the vernacular. They're written on a very specific type of siglia. It's a notorial hand. So this is what I did for 10 years, run through the archives and read this sort of stuff. 
And you don't just have to know the, the different forms of language, but the notarial hand makes sure that you know, even the ecclesiastics, the churchmen, it's a very specific scribal class that has access to this. And it's controlled through the courts. And so information is fundamentally centralized. You know, a document might cost you a year's salary, 10 years' salary. They'd be controlled in a repository. It'd be further away than you would have access to it. It's sort of the rise of the university and scriptorium where they're doing this. And so the eve of the Reformation value as hierarchy is controlled as well as information. And so this is the later Middle Ages. Um, some people talk about it in terms of, you know, the decline of the Middle Ages. The, the early modern historians prefer not to, to think about it in terms of the decline. But the, the, the operative word is aggregation, value and information, protected and permissioned is one way to think about it. And so when you move into the Renaissance and Reformation, and in the olden days, we used to teach those together as part of the same course for a variety of reasons. Um, things happen, that hierarchy becomes unwound. And so one of the questions that historians like to ask is why did that become unwound? And at least my answer for that is this bigger historical narrative where communities are organizing and they're using technological tools as vectors to unwind that hierarchy, or you might even call it hegemony. And it succeeded in the 15th and 16th century. Um, now, there are a number of renaissances and reformations before then that we don't really pay attention to, right? 11th century, 12th century, there are people before Martin Luther, Wycliffe, and Huss. They were burned at the stake. The, the imperial and ecclesiastical structure was able to tamp those down very effectively. Peasants' rebellions and different reformers and uh, people uh, vying to enter the game as new players. And so then the question becomes, why did this one succeed? And when you look at it, they weren't just using technology. They were using two types of decentralized technology. And there's real power in the nature of something being decentralized when pitted against, uh, against hierarchy. It gives asymmetric advantage to the community or to the little guy down the long tail. And so one was the advent of what we would call ledger-based technology. So this would be double-entry bookkeeping. Um, this was a rediscovery or return ad fontes to the sources, you know, classic humanism. It had been lost in the European sphere um, for, for centuries. You know, Pliny the Younger talks about it had been in North African communities. But Medici and company, you know, people in Nîmes, south of France, discover it, for, rediscover it 14th century. And they're able to do debit and credit, which sounds painfully obvious to us. But at the time, you had to stop and do a centralized bookkeep. It just it increased the velocity, the composability of finance and money. It opened up financial products to new sections of the population. Some people would claim it's the, the powering agent behind the rise of proto-capitalism or proto-mercantilism, if you want to describe it that way. But at a minimum, it allowed financiers to become power brokers on the stage. And these financiers didn't come from noble lines, which is you know, how the families or networks or Rizot had operated for thousands of years. They were, able to, they were able to buy their way in to politics in a different way and then also project that downstream. So the ledger-based technology comes online end of the 14th century, picks up steam into the 15th and really gets rolling in the 16th century. This is the rise of Fugger and Medici and all the folks that you typically know about. At the same time, there was a decentralized technology advent in a communication protocol. We call it the printing press. Um, and when we think of printing press, we think of you know, the Gutenberg Bible and you're doing these huge format books and TypeScript that wasn't under controlled you know, ecclesiastical auspices that wasn't really what happened with the printing press. Um, uh, you know, academics like Elizabeth Eisenstein have talked about, you know, it's a different way of learning, and McLuhan talks about it in terms of, you know, the rise of the nation state and mental models, and Anderson runs with, Benedict Anderson runs with that in terms of construct of identity. But what really happened at the time was only 5% of the people were literate, and so you're introducing this new technology into a market that has no audience, which is crazy. And the technology spheres, that's what I've been doing for the past, you know, 
10, 15 years is investing and more recently crypto, you're never supposed to make an invention that doesn't have a market. But that's what happened with the printing press. And so it wasn't permissioned in the sense it did cost money to create a typeset, but you could basically go off into a corner in a print shop and, you know, the back of a shack and be cranking out thousands of not books, but what they called flugschriften or manuscripts or broadsheets. And these were primarily image-based copper woodcut etchings with, you know, tag lines on them. They functioned carrying ideology and semiotic loads like memes would today. And they accounted for over half the print market, right? So you didn't have to be literate. You could kind of be literate. You could get the picture of, you know, someone, someone doing disgusting and vile things in general directions of authority, you know, hierarchical institutions and read a little tagline. They're usually read performatively at a tavern or a public house where there's an audience around. And, uh, and they conveyed this, this anti-hierarchical ideology. And this, this really started with Martin Luther. He accounted for over half of the print at you know, any point in time throughout that century. And he had this cosmological ideological framework where he, he flattened mediation by saying you don't have layers of, of universal tiered construct between deity and you because you were always at the bottom of the pyramid. He had things like the priesthood of all believers, which basically flattened that hierarchy, and then that had economic impact, et cetera, et cetera. So the overall thesis is history ticks back and forth between aggregation and disaggregation. At the end of the Middle Ages, it was highly aggregated, and it became unwound as communities embraced two types of decentralized technology. One was financial, and one was communicative, just full stop. Is that helpful, or is that too? Let me know if that's Perfect. too high or too Perfect. low, because I don't usually I stay a lot no. higher. That was perfect. That was riveting. We can we can unpack a few different aspects of that. The first thing that comes to mind is basically listening to you talk about Luther. It seems pretty striking that he was literally a uh, meme lord shitpost. <laughs> is that is that is that fair to say? That's absolutely fair. Luther, it's funny. Academics always try to polish. We use fancy. We use language which reflects culture and status. But yeah, Luther was a shit poster and he was a master at it. He was absolutely masterful. And when I say that, it, I, I, it's not even I don't even mean that in the abstract. You know, a good chunk of his memes were were, you know, peasants pooping in the papal tira, the sign of authority, or it was them, you know, flatulating fancy word of saying farting in the general direction. I'm convinced Monty Python took a great deal of inspiration from that. Or one is called the birth of the papal curia, which was wildly popular. And it's demons birthing, a.k.a. pooping out clerics and a Medusa figure suckling another cleric. And that's uh, so he was masterful at saying what's the most important locus of control and what's the image that best represents that. And then let me just use scatology, use pooping and farting and like vile and profane acts as an ideological weapon, super intentionally. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's spot on. And that's not something academics like to talk about. Lutherans aren't really into that. But that was Luther at 1000 percent. And he would say Luther would say, hey, it's not just me. That's like St. Paul. If you read him talking about Scabala, you know, that's not feces and the, the original Greek when he opened it up. It's shit like Paul's like all things are shit like. So he would say, hey, that's the biblical picture. And that's also Luther's theology, not the theology of glory, where things are polished in marble palaces and gilded ceilings. Luther is all about theology, the cross versus glory, which basically means the world is upside down, inside out. It's almost it becomes Kant's mad, evil genius. But Luther would say he's restricted. I mean, if you really want to go into it, Luther was crazy in terms of ideology, how he unpacked and unraveled the whole hierarchy was twofold. One, he was an Augustinian monk. So that's not um, that's not you contribute to uh, a cooperation on a divine system. There's this medieval Logan, which is called Faciantibus quad in say yes, deus non denegat gratium. It means to those that 
you know, do the best what's within them. God doesn't deny grace. So it was the civic virtue of cooperation. And Luther said, no, that was pure play Augustinian. He said, no. And then the crazy thing that nobody talks about, because it's kind of esoteric and we don't really like thinking about it, but it was old school versus new school. These were university via Moderna, via Antiqua. This was uh, Thomas Aquinas and classical proofs of God versus this new school. And when they were, they, the faculty wanted to eat together. They had separate entrances into the academy. It was complete craziness. And the new school basically said, all that knowledge is artificial, bottom-up epistemology constructed. You know nothing about anything outside of your own brain. It really free figures, you know, Kant, and that's why Kierkegaard runs with it. And so he said, God is wild and woolly and crazy, and you only know he can do something where he binds himself to do that. And so this comes out of like William of Ockham and Gabriel Beale, and he can trace it. So this was a huge fight inside the church at the time. And Luther was in this radical revolutionary epistemological camp and then he applied that. Basically, you could do a two by two access. What's the foundation for grace and what's the way it's credited? He said foundation is not based on cooperation. It's totally like, you know, at will of God. And then the mechanism is this imputation, not like Gabriel Beale, but credited. And what that basically did was said the church's economy of salvation. This is the background for saying I don't like indulgences. I'm going to nail the 95 theses and these uh you know, jingles for every coin in the coffer that clinks another soul from Purgatory Springs. This is the background. Luther wasn't, you know, uh, uh, an old German jackass. He was a very sophisticated professor of philosophy. And so what he did with all that knowledge was he shitposted with the most the most beautifully sharpened knife. It was just fantastic. And so he was using scatology. My old dissertation advisor, Heike Overman, he has a he has a, a half a book on scatology of Luther, right, which is like craziness only i mean overman was a, a who like no one else would do that today but you're a thousand percent right sorry to go on and on but that's okay. that's, a, that's such a good no. topic yeah it's amazing it's, it's really fascinating to listen to so please don't be shy so let's let's maybe talk a little bit more about how these technological innovations namely so far you've cited the the ledger-based technology you're referring to double entry bookkeeping which was an innovation at the time I just, there was a discovery around how to do that which people did not know how to do before and then the printing press, which people are probably more familiar with. Could you tell us a little bit more about specifically how these technologies entered into the political coalitions of the time and and precisely who were the winners and who were the losers and, and, wh and why? So one way to think about the Middle Ages is there was always there was power wasn't necessarily economic power. A lot of it was privileged power and status. And so the people, the noblesse in the estate that exercised political privilege were often cash poor. There, there's a mismatch in terms of economic alignment, right? And so this is this is like Charles V's grandfather, Maximilian. He's the Holy Roman Empire, and he doesn't have enough money to to get wedding clothes, right? He goes into mines and he has to. He's asking like you know a shopkeeper to give him credit, basically, to get wedding clothes. And the shopkeeper's like, no, I'm not going to give you credit. So they had power and privilege, but they didn't have economics on demand or on tap to be able to enforce that. And so double entry bookkeeping was, on one hand, it is technology. And when we say it relates to crypto, if you hear the word crypto, we call that ledger-based technology. That's like literally a blockchain is a ledger. So it's it's the it's the same permutation of this distributed technology. And in the crypto world, it realigns incentives and gives people 
along the long tail of a distribution curve socioeconomically access to capital on demand. I don't have to go to a, a broker who's wearing a white collar and ask him to do a counterparty trade on a stock book. I can go into code and have it do an automated market, an AMM, automated market making, and uh, and do a snap. And that's essentially what happened in the 14th century. And so there were these these protocols. It's very similar to them rediscovering the zero from you know Arabic sources, right? It it opened up these worlds where. I could have access to cash and could cash flow without having to collect first. And so all of a sudden, the velocity of money goes supersonic. So there's a whole new class of, of financier. And these were kind of previous financial houses that started out with. And so this would be this would be people like the Medici, and they would had operators down in Nîmes, for instance. Um, and they recognize the technology. It's a good lesson for academics to think about. Like when finances change, you're doing a professional, skilled, knowledge-working trade. All of a sudden, new technology comes, and it's this asymmetric opportunity. And they they basically ran with it, allowed them to borrow a little bit of money and compound it and move it at velocity, and then create composable products that uh, that essentially would allow Maximilian to have borrowed that, right? To have borrowed not only his wedding clothes but to have financed his new army. So two people won. One was the new rise of the financier class. And the classic, everybody talks about Jacob Fugger, and, and that's fine. He used, he definitely used the technology, and he made some big bets on Tyrolean silver mines. And it, he's not a pure play example of this. The, the Medici really are the classic example of embracing the technology. And they moved up from kind of lower level socioeconomic kind of guild member participants, shopkeeping financiers, to literally bankrolling the Holy Roman Empire, papal episcopal bishoprics, and that that allowed them to buy their way into the papacy and also through marriage to buy them way, their way into the, the royal crowns of Europe, you know, France and Medici, et cetera. And so that new class of financiers that embraced the technology, they were able to, to give credit to people who had land and privilege. It's nobility of the robe versus nobility of the, the sword is how historians sometimes talk about it outside economic terms. And so it was new players who had entered the game and the medieval hegemonic construct that was always political versus religious and religious was on top, but it was sort of, you know, superimposed. And now all of a sudden there were financiers coming sideways orthonographically, like able to contribute vast sums of cash quickly. And the church couldn't really put it to use, but that political structure that was subsumed by the church absolutely could. And so they won um, substantially. Um, and the, 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 the old school nobility of the sword won by using that. And this is one of the reasons why, as you go through the Renaissance into the rise of the nation state, war gets progressively more expensive because the financiers are just flushing it with cash, basically, into new weapons. And so you have this re-aggregation in the next chapter of the story. But at least for this you know, window, the financiers won as well as the old nobility of the sword won. And the financiers, they actually co-opted the, the offices that had previously been cash poor, but had been privileged and powerful. And so this is, you know, Medici going into bishoprics and papacy and even through marriage into this enforcing their international network. There really weren't states at the time. There were these family networks or Rizzo. This is them, them you know, gaining advantage through, through monarchical uh, stations by exercising that through their cash. And then what happened was, where it got really crazy, because you would think of Luther over here and the Medici over here, you know, being at opposite ends of the spectrum. That's a post-historical anachronistic construct where we see after the Reformation, oh, Luther split off here and Roman Catholic Church split off here. But at the time, it was fluid, right? Just like, um, you know, the door hadn't closed on the Reformation until well into the Council of Trent. And so for 
there was a period where you had Roman Catholic, uh, you know, cardinals, you know, adopting Luther's view of justification, right? It could have gone any way. And so during that period, they co-opted a lot of what Luther was teaching, which was crazy. And so they weren't, the narrative usually goes by people outside historical circles and people in the crypto NFT world think about it this way. People made a bunch of money like the Medici. Now they're going to buy their way into class by, you know, hiring Michelangelo and Da Vinci and painting the Sistine Chapel and blah, blah, blah. That's not act. That's like a gross Machiavellian gloss. It's not actually what happened. What they did was they co-opted some of Luther's ideology and they basically did a couple different things. One, they uncovered or back to the sources, they renaissanced these artistic techniques, which were technology. In the Middle Ages, it was like 2D, right? Symbolic. You've never really seen glass or a mirror. And so maybe you go into church and you get some other idea of transcendence. But now you're looking at oil and you're seeing realism. And it's like our version of AR, VR. And, you know, the Medici are having their avatars painted in the pictures. And so there's the idea of like going back and forth between it. And then... Then they basically adopted this idea of what was sacred versus what was profane um, out of Luther straight out, which was crazy. So Luther, as you know, the previous monk, you know, you were supposed to be outside the world in the medieval stack. The most grace was by people either in the church or in monasteries or nunneries outside the world. You'd pray you'd have a repository grace. It would trickle down. And Luther said, no, no, no. Not only is that cosmic hierarchy flat. But there's this doctrine of vocation where you do your job. It's not more holy to be at a monastery. It's just as holy for the milkmaid to be milking or for you to be, you know, a shop owner or for you to exercise, you know, a role within family or within commerce. And as a result, all of these things where art was sacred on only religious domain. And then all of a sudden the Medici start unpacking the common, you know, flowers, fruit, what have you. So too the profane, the, uh, the, the pagan mythology. So you see this influx of all of this content for what constituted art was opened up. So it wasn't only shitposting. It was also the idea that this theology of creation, even the crazy stuff like the Greek pagan uh, narratives had meaning. And so the Medici used art to not only co-opt their status using these, these uh, stations, but they reinterpreted what was good versus what was bad. Us versus them kind of, you can apply all sorts of political layers to it if you choose to. And so concretely, the financiers took off like a rocket, and they also funded the old world nobility of the sword. And that was the genesis of kind of this triangulation of political infighting, which became the wars of religion. But the financiers actually co-opted the old world, and then they reinterpreted what had value in it, which is kind of a crazy story. Yeah, that's amazing. Very, very well said. So I'm curious more concretely for the new rising financial elite of the crypto world, what should they be learning from the Medici's? So if, if, if I'm like a crypto whale and I'm thinking about how I can take power and, uh, you know, uh, assume my, my role in, in, in the current historical juncture, what specifically do you see today as the opportunities that were, uh, you know, in front of the Medici's, which the Medici's, you know, successfully took? Yeah, I think, I think this whole narrative, you know, the crypto narrative is it serves those in power to say, Hey, you have to be a crypto whale and it's about trading coins and it's about Dogecoin and craziness. It always starts with finance and then it moves to work and DAOs and economies and then it moves into identity and how you're loading that with, you know, charges. And that's one way to interpret NFTs is these on-chain rights. But like what the Medici's did is like a great lesson for anyone in, who's not a financier, but anyone doing any work in the, the world. And it doesn't have to be, you know, within this wholly cloistered space is to, 
to adopt the technology and bake it into your normal workflow, right? Or into your normal like work-based identity. And what I mean by that is we think of crypto as trading coins and blockchain, fine. You can more broadly think about crypto as an economic model that basically pays people to participate. And if you're super into you know the crypto world, you'll hear about play to earn where you're getting paid to do a video game, right? Like pay to participate is a different way to think about it. So if you think about, if you think about what we've seen with, I'd say the internet isn't like the printing press. The internet fully hasn't happened yet. It's only now happening with crypto and Web3 where it's truly decentralized and not choked by, by Amazon or Google, not just on a platform, but even the processing stack. This idea of participating to earn, Web2, you were the product. You used a service, you used the analytics, you used a social platform. You might have paid a little bit for it, maybe you didn't pay anything about it, but the 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 company's economics, and I know this because we've done startups, B2B SaaS analytics, where we sold them to public companies this is what we did for a day job writing AI algorithms. Like, So you were the product, you were the data source, right? And so you didn't, not only did you not own any, any part of that company, you were actually the fodder that was being ground up. And the way those economics would work is those companies would have to raise a boatload of money, typically from VC. And now we run a little fun. So, I mean, I'm, I'm telling you all the secrets and opening the kimono. This is what they typically do. You'd spend 80% of your budget running Facebook ads trying to influence you to do something. It was this proxy. And just like, you know, Levi's making all the money out of the gold rush, the, the platforms that are doing the advertising to influence you made all the money out of that. And so that's your, like, world right now. Um, and it's usually in technology. The real world doesn't have an economic model and the values misaligned. So what crypto does is it allows a technological infrastructure where people can put a uh, model on where, where it's a different type of economic battery. So you're not the product, you're the co-owner. So anything you do from your work to your entertainment, you can use, and it's early, so they're now only coming online, but they're out there. And one of the things you can learn from the Medici is asymmetric advantage for adopting early, is you can basically say, hey, I'm not going to use a web 2.0 platform or work construct or corporation or academic institution. I'm going to use the web three crypto version of it. And when I do that, number one, I won't have to pay anything for that. And number two, when I participate with that, I'll actually earn you know, equity in that company. So I don't have to invest crypto whale coin. I can just do it. So let me give you two tactical examples or three tactical examples, right? So one is I don't, I'm just, I'm driving, you know, Uber, right? I don't do, I'm, but I'm listening to Spotify, right? So I pay $10 a month to listen to Spotify or I'm running a, a restaurant. You and I only pay $10 to listen to Spotify, but if I'm running a restaurant, I have to pay 15K to BMI, another 10K, I have to pay $35,000 a year for licensing music, right? And like, if I'm running at one or 2% margin for a restaurant and we're here in Louisville, Kentucky, so it's not a cash center, that's, that's the difference between being profitable and not profitable. I can swap out and use a crypto-based platform called Audius. And full disclosure, we either know these guys or like these guys or love them or hate them or we're super conflicted either way. So just this is one of a bunch of examples you can point to. So maybe I use Audius and I don't have to pay my $10 a month if I'm just driving an Uber or I don't have to pay my $35,000 if, if I'm running a restaurant. What's really interesting about that is as I listen to it, I earn these tokens. And if I make a playlist that's curated and I add some value by doing things, I earn more tokens. And if I create a little bit of music. If I'm an artist, instead of Spotify gating it through mediation and only letting me talk to my audience four times a year and not giving me the data to be able to see where my audience is and where I should do a show, Audius is open, basically. And then it allows me to change the economic models, the distribution, the payment curve. So instead of everybody at $10 a month, I can literally say, oh, you're a super fan. I love, I love other life and I want to support this in a fundamental way, basically. And so now all of a sudden my I'm not paying money, but I'm just earning cryptocurrency and tokens by participating in something I otherwise would have done, entertainment, right? 
or another example would be unlocking. So like Helium is like this protocol that you run a little box and it broadcasts Internet of Things or 5G or satellite. So I'm paying rent in a flat. And now I run this little box and, you know, uh, essentially I'm already paying Spectrum or Verizon for Internet. And this broadcasts a signal to everybody all over the place. And it's decentralized. There's no there's no shutoff switch. So, you know, there won't be another Arab Spring because I can cut that line. This is decentralized. They call it the people's network. So you can't cut it. It's peer to peer computer based. And so what that does is that that gives me tokens I can either keep or I can cash out and pay USD. And these are covering restaurant owners rent. Right. Or the building behind me is an old bourbon bar that we ran a couple of these nodes and it, it paid for this was a drug fire. You know, this was an old dilapidated building that had multiple drug fires. And we ran a couple nodes and we were able to pay for it and restore it. So you could do that for real estate. The emerging pieces are around work. So if you're looking for work and specific things, you know, from thought pieces to traditional work, you can use a platform like Brain Trust, which is kind of like it's an old world construct of headhunting, meaning, you know, monster marketing, except it's crypto based. So you own a piece of that um, and so on and so forth. And you're starting to see you're starting to see structures around NFTs where they're paying for intellectual property which allows independent researchers to do material science. And uh, so the overall answer to it is you don't even have to trade coins. You have to, one, recognize the opportunity. That Helium box costs like $300. You don't have to purchase anything. And it'll return, you know, early it'll return five, six, seven figures. And, you know, there's still another jump up there. Um, so the Medici answer would be to recognize the opportunity to get in early. And you don't have to contribute a boatload of capital. You just have to participate using your skills and your vocation employing this new economic system that doesn't siphon all the funds to thing to the technological mediators but distributes it to the community that's a long answer but it's such a okay. good question i wanted to hit all the pieces of it no it's a great answer and it's kind of surprising because what you're basically saying is that the lesson of the renaissance and the medici's is not that in the current phase of crypto we should look to like the winkle the lingual the winklevoss brothers to like be this new, uh, you know, city state, and they're going to fund this new form of art. You're actually saying that that's the wrong way to apply the analogy. Uh, and that actually, it's just early adopters across the board across the long tail, those early adopters are going to have a disproportionate gain. Yeah, you need those sorts of people, you know, the Medici's that it's like Leo the 10th, right? The Pope who's the Medici, like you have those guys floating around, and it's good to have them to say, Look what you can do. But they're they're already starting out with tremendous tech capital. They're pouring it as an investment thesis. So that happens. But the idea of decentralized technology that's economic as well as communicative, which means I can now organize, I can share information and I can incentivize people to do things and we can do it collectively. That doesn't benefit the people already at the top of the pyramid. Yeah, if you double an ungodly denominator, fine. But if you're down here, what I mean is that decentralized, that asymmetric advantage yeah, it's the opposite of it. So when you say Medici, everybody thinks, you know, papal court and, you know, uh, oil bait or frescoes. That's a symbol and that's fine. But it was really all the financial houses that were previously farmers or shopkeepers that were part of that network that went from like subsistence farming to having surplus, right? All along the long tail of the distribution curve. Yeah, a thousand percent right. Man, if I only could have said that in 10 words, that would have been better, huh? <laughs> No, no, no. Your your longer, richer version was was even better. So it's basically people should be interested in not necessarily the Medici's primarily, but the probably thousands and thousands of people who are flocking from their limited, oppressive countryside into the cities. The Bergers, the the new entrepreneurs, the long tail of the Renaissance, really, which is perhaps you know less 
uh, less widely written about or less widely known. No. But that's really where the the action is that that's most relevant for for most people thinking about how to play in the new crypto. Revenue. That comes out of like I'm sort of I'm very old school in my historiography, so I love the Nalls and you know Ferdinand Braudel and these these French guys that always talk about the the marginalized people and what it's really like on capitalism down in the trenches with kind of material culture. Like let the facts sink in. The Holy Roman Empire couldn't get a loan because he didn't have cash with him to cover his like wedding suit, right? Like just, so what are you as a farmer going to have access to capital wise if you wanna set up a print shop and you need to buy, you know, type font? The answer is nothing. Now all of a sudden the Medici and trickling down and it's not just, when we say family, I guess I should also just introduce this one other concept real quickly. These families, there was no nation, right? There were just families and these families were supernatural national networks and so when I say the Medici, I mean all the thousands of people in their clientage, right? It was their their political party, their imagined community, right? So it was it was thousands of people that were part of the Medici, right? It wasn't just the five guys sitting around the dinner table, just for for full disclosure. So yeah, it's a good point. When <coughs> excuse me, when I say crypto Medici, like I mean the thousands of people adopting where they're playing financial games, but they're not only doing gains on paper they're able to take some of that new economic battery and do things in the real world. Perhaps it's artistic, perhaps it's a shop, perhaps it's physical space. Um, but yeah, it's the opposite of the Winklevoss. We could take a step back and say, what role does that narrative serve where I have the Winklevi doing this thing? Like that's, that's a specific hegemonic function, I'd say. Like that's like a totally other separate story. But yes, a thousand percent right. Thank you for like sharpening that. That's exactly right. Um, so you don't have to put in transfer your 401k to Dogecoin, you can literally say, what are the things I'm spending my money on that go to like financial aggregators that I don't own? And are there crypto versions of that? You call it Web3, call it decentralized or distributed. If you don't like the C word, that's fine. And can I participate in those? And if they're early, I might not like the UI or the UX. The experience might not be as nice, but I might get in early and earn this coin that could be five, six, seven figures on this, right? With doing nothing, with literally setting up an account on my phone that takes five minutes and listening. There's Uber drivers learning more, earning more off audios than listening to, than driving Uber, right? It like, it flips all of a sudden making music, things that have meaningful value objectively now have an economic battery that allow me to do that, right? The medieval world was one of stasis where I couldn't set up a shop or I couldn't, you know, uh, deal with anything in the physical world or do kind of small scale financial loans. But now I have this technological battery that allows me to do that. And when you couple that with the printing press and with communication, now it's it's goes hyperbolic. It's not just arithmetic. Right. OK. And you know what's interesting about the way you're putting it is a lot of people will think of the Medici's as, you know, people vaguely know, oh, yeah, that was a big, super powerful, rich family with a lot of financial and political power back in the Renaissance times. But what's maybe more relevant from your perspective is that the Medici's were already a kind of decentralization of the even more centralized power uh, before them. And so and so the relevant trajectory is the the trajectory from the centralized powers before the Medici to the somewhat decentralizing, um, ungovernable uh, exodus of, of financial and political power that the Medici's capitalized. But then moving even further down the line, it's like the today, it's like a Medici unto yourself, no, right? It's like everyone has this, everyone now has this opportunity to make their own play, to be their own Medici in their own domain. And that long tail is going to be even longer 
than than it. Used that's so to. that's spoken like a true historian. It's like continuity versus discontinuity, and where's your point of reference for the the nature of the change? No, that's exactly. We say, oh, they're super aggregated because we aggregated because we think of it compared to today. But at the time, if you wanted money, you had to have noble sign off on it, right? And now all of a sudden, this guy on the corner opens up a shop, and he's like, I'll give you a loan. And and not everyone understood that, right? They'd say, now your peer at an academic institution or another farmer down the street, he wouldn't understand. It seemed abstract. It seemed weird, right? You have a piece of paper that has some numbers. Not like what? That's not wealth. Like wealth is the cows I'm bringing to market. So you have to. There's this. There's this intellectual hump to get over. But yeah, it's massively disaggregated. And in crypto, it's the same thing. If I wanted a loan to start a business, I have to go into my bank, and I have to have a conversation with somebody, and they're probably going to look at how I look as well as my as well as my history and the communication around that is going to be privileged, right? How would I get access to these contracts? I'd have to go to men of letters called lawyers and crack into these things to say, what's my, what are my assets and what are they worth and what are my blah, blah, blah. With crypto, I can literally be anonymous, go on a site, go on automated market makers, doesn't matter from 16 year old Anon kid, and I, I can see visibility into the chain, right? So it, it, it massively is just, a, a, it transfers the ability to control finance from the locus of hierarchy all along the decentralized tail, right? And then what happened with the Medici is they started funding the guys at the top. It flipped so quickly, which, by the way, is kind of what we're seeing in, in crypto right now, too. Like, so anyway. Okay, well, that's fascinating. So let's let's uh, keep playing out this story. So as we know, the decentralization of power that occurred in the Renaissance did lead to a number of conflicts. Uh, these are sometimes uh, summarized under the wars of religion. Let's talk a little bit about how those political coalitions unfold, and specifically with an eye with an eye towards towards the present day. Like, let's try to think through what types of political conflicts and and coalitions we might expect to see in the next decade or two, based on what we know about how the the wars of religion unfold. Oh man, that's such a, I'm so glad you asked that. You you have to tell that first. It's a lot to take in. And so I'm sure your audience, I know you can handle it where you have to say, hey, close your eyes and pretend you're a medieval farmer and you can't imagine being, you know, a capitalist having a shop. And this is they use the technology and then, OK, they unwind this thing. Just even to take that in is very difficult for most people. And then, yeah, what's the application? Be a Medici, not in the sense of a, a guy cutting with a gold you know, fork, but in terms of in terms of doing what you're doing, using this new economic battery. And then you say, OK, what happened now? Like now it gets even crazier. right? So like what happens when the pendulum swings back and you unwind this? You have these periods of, of chaos, right? Because like that stability or hierarchy, it, 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 it's, it's the same reason corporations and Fortune 500s use bureaucracy. It's not a it's not a it's not a bug. It's a feature, right? You want stabilization when you're in control and when you're controlling assets and aggregation. You want stability, so you build bureaucracy. That's that's a feature of your system. So when that comes unwound, like crazy things happen, right? So very tactically, the land at the time, if the church owns a third of it and it's in monasteries, Luther comes along and says, hey, everybody should be out in the world working in these shops and what have you, and there's nothing more holy about you as the monk versus, you know, you working in the world or being the executioner or what have you, right? And so the cities dissolve the monasteries. They take the land <laughs> back, right? So it's a powerful economic you know, uh, that's one of the reasons Henry and the Church of England like said, oh, wait, I can have all this land back. They dissolve the monasteries 
And so the economics where that's where wealth is at the time, right? Because you haven't you don't yet have ledger based dominating wealth is in land, you know, primarily as the asset. And so now all of a sudden the assets been distributed and it's not in one institution. It's this geography and this city and this part of a federated territory and this family over here. And it's it's scattered. And then you have the advent of of new people and new ideas floating around this and in this mix, too. Right. So the the monks and nuns who are off over there now, all of a sudden they come back and you have 10 to 30 percent of the population who are starting families and they tend not to be subsistence farmers. They can read a little bit more and they might be second or third, you know, offspring. And so you now have a bunch of players in the scene, right? And so you're scattering the economics, you have different players, you have the advent of, of capital, and then into this mix, you also inject this print culture, right? Which I can't emphasize enough. The historians are always talking about, um, you know, it being an accelerant for learning and what have you. But as we were talking about with Luther shitposting, it's it's primarily saying the world- it's memes. Yeah, memes, memes. exactly. The, the world as you know it is illegitimate. And so go create something else. And so as you might expect, you know, there was a period of of upheaval. And what happened was there were there were and now I'm going to get into your territory. So I'll look to you for guidance on that. It wasn't just classic cleavage. It was like a weird overlay. So in the Middle Ages, you have these networks or these Rizzo and they were the political entity. You were you were in a geography. You weren't part of a nation yet that hadn't occurred to you. And you you were a member of a clientage of a, of a political, economic familial cultural network of some family or another, right? And so, and these families had wars all the time. The Bourbon hated the geese, right? And so they fought all the time and they went back and forth and they'd, they'd try to trade for bishoprics and for, you know, uh, thrones and for lesser noble stations, et cetera, et cetera. And now all of a sudden there's a split. Like previously, just like at the end of the, the Roman world, the idea was if you want to have a good, stable, uh, subservient population, you can't have religious bifurcation. Everybody has to have a shared, the medieval world was in a hierarchy. It was interwoven and founded on the idea that everybody had a shared faith, shared baptism, which gave them inter, interwoven links of fidelity and obligation, responsibility. So when you split that and you say, these guys aren't legitimate. In fact, they're not only illegitimate, they're antichrist, like end of the world. They're doing, you know, Satan's bit. They're, they're the epitome of other, right? So now your world not only cracks, but you have us versus them in a really substantial fundamental way. And so what happens is, as you might expect, some of the some of the networks adopt certain religions. There's a religious opportunity. Previously, it had been X and Y, you know, in church versus in family. And now there's this or politics versus family alliance. And now there's this religious there's a Z axis, right? Oh, wait, I can be a different religion. And so you have the Bourbon becoming Protestant and the, the classic Marxists would say, you have these family networks, one becomes Protestant and one becomes Catholic and they duke it out under the mask of the religious wars. That's like a very nice narrative, but it doesn't fit the facts at all. Basically what happens in the facts is that you have some of that going on for sure, but you have this open world where two things happen. One, the political apparatus emerges for the first time and says, hey, if there really is the religious hierarchy has dissolved, maybe the political hierarchy can take that place. And so that's where you have these dreams of Anglicanism and Gallicanism. And this is eventually what you have happen, you know, moving into France and the Sun King and the rise of the nation state and all that sort of stuff. But in this interim period, you had my enemy of my enemy is my friend, essentially, and my network is going to fight, but I have a new access. And so these communities actually experience cleavage within the network itself, which is crazy. You have a four by four grid. So you have a lot of religious war, which is bad. The wars of religion conjure up all sorts of horrible images, admittedly so. 
I should say a few things about that because people say, oh, are we going into religious wars? Is it going to be U.S. versus China? So what actually happened in the wars of religion, there wasn't nearly as much military conflict as you would expect. And rarely did you have the state or the, the monarchy turning against the population. If you have to turn your army against your population, you've already lost, right? That, that, isn't, that isn't, ideally, if you're effective at like tools of control, you don't want to turn your military against your population. You don't even want to have to threaten them. If you, if you have to fight your population, you fail. If you threaten them, you get a D. If, if the idea enters their head and they say, no, maybe I shouldn't do that, you get a C. If the idea never enters their head, you get a B. And if they say, no, no, I'm so much aligned with the dominant hierarchy that I not only don't want to resist it, but I want to support it because my good is aligned with it and that's the locus of my identity, then you get an A. And so in the wars of religion, you have conflict, but a lot of the conflict is political. It's the beginning of resistance theory. The Pope of the Huguenots is writing things like Vindicii Contra Tyrannos, which is talking about talking about political resistance theory through lower nobility. And that's what the English philosopher's Locke is just taking footnotes out of it, right? Um, and you have, so you have conflict, it stabilizes, and then you get this period of religious pluralism and mutual rights and contracts. And like the Edict of Nantes is the, is the best example of that. Um, and that was, you know, one family versus another family. If you want a short history or summary, go watch or read you know, Queen Margot or Lorraine Margot. It's a Dumas movie. You can get it on Netflix if you want to see it. It's a beautiful period piece, and it shows the the triangulation. And basically, Henry Bourbon says, okay, all my other rivals die, and if I want to unite the realm, I need to convert. So he converts, and he doesn't convert to hardcore Roman Catholicism. He wants to create a new Gallicanism like Anglicanism and unite the whole realm. And then he crafts the Edict of Nantes. It's one nephew versus an uncle in the same family on other sides of the religious question. And they're negotiating against each other, but they're supporting the realm. And you have this triangulation. And they create this masterful piece of you know, religious liberty that, uh, that's very, very nifty. And that lasts for 100 years. And it starts to get peeled back progressively until you get to the revocation of the Edict of Nantes and the, the advent of the, the nation state. And so during that period of triangulation, um, you have weird alliances pop out. You have historical enemies now united on the Z-axis aligning together. So let me just stop there. It's a lot to throw at you. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> no, that's fantastic. I'm I'm curious why exactly do you think these technological innovations, the the double entry bookkeeping and the printing press, why did they stoke the religious dimension in particular? Why, why what is the precise relationship there because one could imagine that these these disruptive innovations could have um shaken up one of the other dimensions it's just as plausible why, why do you think that, what is that what is exactly that relationship between the technology and religion exactly so there's two pieces to that question this is so fun having this conversation this is different than the usual um so there's two things one when we ask that question we look back in accuracy and we're like hey why did it do why why was the why was the vector of contention religious like to them they wouldn't have they don't have a, a bifurcation between religious and political. Religious is political for them. And not just as religious political, religious is cosmic power, right? Like it's it, it's the locus of power. So their station is we always talk divine right of kings. And like in your book, you talk about like, that's great. But it, it's like divine right of everybody in the nobility. It goes down the whole the whole clientage, right? So when you get rid of that, when you say that actually might not be the case guy, like Luther's theology of glory the guy up in the golden palace who has the divine right, that actually might not be 
uh, positive thing that might be negative. Um, the the lower gods who are who are better at ruling this sort of thing are like really good at that. That was Luther saying like you know the Pope is Antichrist. It would have it would have shocked people. They would have said <gasps> like he sees the throne of Christendom. That's why he thought the world was ending, right? And so part of it was their whole world was ending in apocalypse. This is like Drewer's apocalyptic dream and what have you. Then it's the locus of their control and power. The technology itself, the forensic techniques, this is like Erasmus is a good humanist. He looks at that donation of Constantine where the Roman Empire gave the political arm of the sword to the church. And Erasmus, who's like consummate Roman Catholic, says, no, this is a fake. This is a forgery, right? And so like now all of a sudden politics is up for grabs because religion was the hierarchy that held things together. So they're wrestling with this idea of if I have plural religions, how can I have, if I'm united in my worldview, how can I be united in my political view, right? So that's part of it. And then the other thing that happened is it wasn't just technology that caused the religious question. These religious questions, these reforms had been bubbling up forever. They just never made it to the top, right? Like Wycliffe and Huss, when Luther's up there standing in front of Charles V and they're yelling Hussite, Wycliffeite at him, they were saying, hey, your ideas people have had before, they were just burned for them, right? You're a heretic, that's idea. The, the, the idea of printing in the vernacular, right? Like that everybody has access to the source code. These things are not new. The difference was Luther ran headlong into the technology and essentially front, front ran it. He, he was able to print the ideas at scale to the point where it was a force that couldn't be crushed down. So it wasn't that the technology has something necessarily innate in the idea of religion. One, religion for them was hierarchy and control. Two, there, were always, there was always this bubbling up resistance, but the technology allowed them to finance the resistance, which they could never do before, right? Because finance was controlled, right? I had to get permission to, to raise an army, right? Now I can actually like get a small loan and be hiring like men at war just off the land, off the hedges. Um, and two, I can actually share my ideas. Nobody who knew who Wycliffe was or Huss was, a few educated clerics. Now I have half the population like knowing these, seeing these memes like with Luther, like so the technology was a vector, an enabling agent, a gain of function, if you want to use that nomenclature. I don't know if that's helpful or not. Okay. I get, yeah, absolutely. It makes sense. It's basically what you're saying it sounds like is that religion was the, the meta power in a way because it's, it, because it's essentially cosmological. It structures everything beneath it. And it's really only in our secular age that we can foolishly imagine that politics could be the meta power. Exactly. In, in a, in a, in a, exactly. Yeah. They would say, they would look at us and say, you guys do the same thing. You just use different nomenclature, right? You have meta powers and you have cosmologies. You say it's not religious, but just by defining it against it, you're in the same. They'd say, we do the same thing. We just have like a linguistic ships in the night kind of thing going on. Okay. Okay. Makes sense. So, so in, in some ways then and now, Religion is always the meta power that structures the the, the cosmos identity. Uh, it's it's kind of the base layer for everything else. Even if you're going to deny, you know, your interest in religion or your devotion to religion. The thing that Luther did there. Was, so in some sense, people were saying, hey, everybody should have access to the source code. You probably shouldn't have like these excesses and abuses going on. But Luther also in, he had this radical kind of revolutionary saying that Antichrist is ruling the throne of Christendom. I can't emphasize enough when he's pooping in the pope's hat. It's like. Where's the locus of our faith and power? Like U.S. petrodollar, right? So saying money printer go burr is like our equivalent of like Luther pooping in the Pope's. It's like a symbol of everything you believe, like not being legitimate, fine. But he also had this radical, 
this priesthood of all believers or not having to earn your way into heaven, not having to do good works to gain things, but having it done a priori as a substitute. Like he had this very sovereign individual bent to his theology, right? It was super radical. Priesthood of all believers means you don't have multiple layers with like Christ and Mary and these guys and this guy's where you're at the bottom and trickling down. He flattens it and you're on equal footing with the Pope, right? It's craziness to be able to say that you're you're sweeping shit in a stable and you're just as holy as the old monk who was up there running the abbot. It's like complete sovereign individual autonomy type. We'd recognize as like crypto punk almost today, like cypherpunk, like it's crazy. Um, So there is there's a definite bent of that too. him saying, no, no, go out in the world and do your thing and like decentralized power. Anyone has access to the source code, him rendering the stuff out of out of the Latin, it's removing these glosses. So like over a thousand years, like repent and believe, what do I need to do? Like that's in the Vulgate, like a Gita penitatum, like do penance and Erasmus says, no, it's metanoia in the Greek, right? It's like, so they erase a thousand years of like theology becomes illegitimate. And then Luther says, everybody has access to the source code, right? It's almost like, that's a very, that's like radical in its own nature, but the ideology of flattening the hierarchy and then basically saying anyone else who doesn't do this is like demonic and has seized the seed of political power. It's like, man, that that makes Marx look like a, a kitty cat. Right. OK. OK. So basically double entry bookkeeping and the printing press both unlock financial power, uh, access to credit, just general kind of financial fluidity and power for all people who want to take it, really. But at the same time, it allows for. Uh, competition, basically, at the religious level, at at the cosmological structuring of society. Now, someone like Luther has the technological means to actually take a stab at the defining cosmological structures. And that's what he he uses those technologies to do that effectively through, uh, you know, memes and shit posting. And so that's why there's this kind of financial revolution going on. But the real political conflict and and the real coalitional uh, restructurings take place in the, in the world of religion, because for the first time you have people competing seriously at scale at, at the religious level, which is the meta level, really. That's exactly right. So to go back to the earlier part of the conversation, so Luther shit posting isn't just like, haha, it's funny. That's why I was saying my advisor wrote like, he's like, this is actually the key to the whole thing. How quickly does he gain adoption on it? Right. And so you can say, oh, NFTs are stupid pixelated cats, but it's like, well, if you believe the Trojan horse is digital rights of real world and on chain assets and experiences, then having a pixelated cat like there might as a step fun- function of adoption, there might be something to that. So it's like key to his, to his dynamic. And then the religious is the meta level, but it's also I can't emphasize this enough. It's the forcing function that causes like parallel cleavage and interwine, intertwine, uh, like interwoven cleavage. And what I mean by that is like you have this you have this financial and you have this cultural two by two, right? Like we have today. Oh, I'm I'm fiscally conservative and socially liberal. Oh, does that make me, I'm not really Republican, I'm not really Democrat, how's that work? And now all of a sudden you enter, for the first time there's a Z axis, it's like a cube, 3D, right? So they say, hey, you don't just have to be, am I a papal Roman Catholic or am I like a, a national, uh, uh, like a decentralized conciliatory council-driven Roman Catholic, right? That's why they hated the councils. The big debate in the Roman, in the Middle Ages was like, does a Pope need to call a council? Because it's like council versus like high, that was the thing, right? Now all of a sudden they come along and they say, no, there's this whole other idea. Do you even have to be Roman Catholic in the first place, right? And so these princes are like doing their jobs, much like the Medici, like an academic. They don't have to go like borrow a ton of money and go be something else. They can just do their job they're currently doing. That was Luther's vocation. Say, hey, you can 
you can run your city and help run your city. It doesn't have to be a Roman Catholic city. It can be a Protestant city. And they're like, wait, 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 wait. We always hated these other guys over here, right? And those guys are saying this way religiously. Now we can be on this side. And so it, it acts as this forcing function and cleavage. But where things really got interesting was very often the enemy of my enemy was my friend, right? And so the, the lower, the people who were just massacred during the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre during the Wars of Religion, the, the bloody high point of bloodshed, they go to the low countries and then they're funding Charles V's like, like global exploration, right? Because he hates the Turks and the Turks are keeping him off, you know, the Protestant cities and the Protestant cities. So all that's to say, you're two by two of political ideology. You have a new dimension entered in. Yes, it's a meta dimension, but also it allows you 3D to triangulate. And that's honestly what we see politically today, right? That's why everybody's talking, you know, crypto single issue voting. Like that's why you get like Andrew Yang and Ted Cruz on the same side, right? They're they're on opposite sides on the two by two, but on the the in the cube, they're very close on the same plane. Does that make sense? OK, fascinating. Yeah, I think so. But let's talk more about this. It's really good. So, you know, you will often hear today superficial analogies drawn between religion and crypto, right? It's not too hard to see that, you know, whether you're a Bitcoin maxi or an ETH maxi or whatever, it, it, people will commonly point out that some of these communities have certain superficial kind of religious um, aspects in, in some ways, arguably. But l maybe we can go a little bit deeper beyond this kind of uh, superficial comparison people sometimes like to make, often dismissively. If crypto represents this new kind of Z axis, this new dimension that is going to disrupt the current axes of, of political coalitions today, and if we do believe that religion has this unique role as as the kind of meta level in our society where many people especially you know the the high iq high status people um like to imagine themselves as post-religion you know what really is the religious dimension of the new crypto-based technological society mm, in your perspective man, that's such a good that's like i wasn't even planning getting into this so that's like that's such a good question so there's <laughs> I'm, full disclosure, I'm still like formulating this thought, but there's like a few things we can. Sure. And part of this is I can't emphasize enough. Like we're really early, right? Like we're super early. Like we think the Internet's been around for a long time. Like historians are going to look back and say, no, no, that 30 or 40 years before Web3, that's like a weird. It's just like the early printing press branches that didn't work out. We're not even going to know about those anymore. And so there's a few things going on. It's almost like crypto. The other narrative you hear in crypto is, oh, I had to learn economics and finance for the first time and I learned it through crypto, right? I learned what like counter, I learned what a trade is. I learned what a spot trade is. I learned what a future is, what a derivative is. I learned what a counterparty is or market. So people are learning it. And that's kind of what's happening. These new technologies, just like in the Renaissance and Reformation, they start out in finance because that's the economic engine that allows this other activity to happen, right? And then they move into, they move into, communication and work and coordination. Like, do I work for a company? Do I work for a corporation? Do I work for a medieval lord? Do I work for <clears throat> like a, a miniature corporation as part of proto-capitalism? Do I work for a company today or do I work for a DAO, right? Like it, we're, that's the next phase. And then what you're actually describing is like where we move into this like role of identity where things get like super crazy and like it's almost an on-ramp. So one, you definitely have this tribalism, like wars of religion, like, hey, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Protestant. You're not the right kind of Protestant. I'm this other kind of Protestant. Part of it is because you're defining yourself against the... Uh, now that there's something new, it's open landscape. You don't know the topogra the mental topography, right? So you have to 
you have to chart it out and you chart it out through difference. Like this is your research, right? Like you chart it out through difference. The idea of difference, super important for creating that like cosmological and like IRA, like political philosophical landscape. So that's part of like the tribalism. So you'll definitely have people like using zealous religious language. That's fine. Then part of it is on ramping, not just into finance and technical trades, but on ramping into what currency is and what like political nation state is where it's like shared consensus. This is like to me and you, not a big deal. Everybody knows this, right? But to like average Joe or Jane on the street to say, hey, um, you know that dollar? That's a piece of paper and it has this image on it and we only say it has value. Now that's off gold standard because we say it has value and we have faith in the political institution, right? Like the phenomenology of it maps pretty closely to religious phenomenology. We just never think of it. Just like a medieval farmer wouldn't have thought of like, hey, can I actually read scripture myself? And should there be a priest of all believers? Like that doesn't enter his head, right? The same way it doesn't enter. So we're using crypto as this onboarding to say, wow, a lot of the knowledge is like a 101 in philosophy and epistemology, right? Like a lot of the knowledge we think we have isn't directly experiential or observable. And like, so now all of a sudden our world is getting like not so mechanistic just out of the gate, right? Like crypto is almost this forcing function for onboarding. How do I know what I know? What role does authority have in it? Like what's the role of consensus and identity construction? So part of that is like now all of a sudden the religious language, like post-religious people are like, hey, hey, it's not just because I'm reading like Baudrillard all of a sudden, like this actually has like economic value in my wallet, right? Like I have I have a reason for learning this esoteric philosophy, which is like craziness. Um, so that's like one piece of it. Um, so on ramp and then this splitting function is also really interesting in terms of identity. Where like before you're a printer, you're a farmer, you're a politician, you're a clergyman, and now you're a Protestant printer and you put your seal and your image on it, right? And versus your Catholic printer, right? Like they, the Catholics say, oh, I'm going to KYC you. You have to register. We control the means of communication. They do it anyway. Now they're in this trap. Do I legitimize it by participating or do I ignore it and let it gain ground? I, I, I participate. So now it's us versus them in different flavors, Protestant versus you know Roman Catholic in terms of all these spheres. The locus of identity goes out of my vocation and out of my clientage into my work, right? Which is like really interesting. And like in the West, like that's not unlike the crack in the armor in terms of nation state identity to say, hey, am I part of a nation? Am I an American? Am I, uh, am I Bulgarian? Oh no, I'm a, I'm a trader. I'm a FinTech guy or whatever, right? Like we have this crack in the armor. Now all of a sudden with crypto, it splits in the same function, right? Like I'm not a, I'm not a finance guy. I'm a DeFi guy, right? I'm not an artist. I'm a generative artist, right? I'm not a, so you have this splitting in terms of identity. So like who you think you are gets blown up. The idea of like accepting things because they are on like religious faith without questioning it gets blown up. And not just like in the salons of France, but like with real six, seven, eight figure impact if you figure it out. So like I think that's that's part of what's going on. And where it's getting really crazy is like the NFT piece and philosophy just like the internet was kind of building towards Web3, like we'll say the internet was Web3. For those in the audience who are just tuning in, Web, you know, the Arab Spring, everybody tweets and like you have this revolution. That's not going to happen again. There's a cord and they know how to cut it now. They've been giving lessons to Russians and Chinese. They know how to cut that. That's not going to happen again. That's because it's centralized. You're, it's not just on Twitter. Your processing goes through AWS, through Amazon Web Services. It's broadcast through Verizon or something like that. Every layer in the transmission stack of communication is centralized. And so Web3 is decentralizing every layer in that. It's the platform, like I was talking about in the music, 
It's the processing. Instead of going through one of five data centers, you know, in the US, it's everybody's computer doing it and the broadcasting using the little box, right? So now that I have this internet and I can share this stuff, like it gets, uh, it, it basically allows me, it, it gives me a different access in terms of the sovereign identity. So that's why it also becomes religious. Like our religion was the individual, right? And so like now I'm looking back, that's why the book, The Sovereign Individual is such like a sensation with like hardcore crypto guys. And then you look at Luther and you say, hey, what he was saying is nothing compared to Luther. There's this religious construct around the individual and the agency. Like sovereign individual is like a recapitulation of like Luther's priesthood of all believers in some ways, if you want to think about it phenomenologically. And then these NFTs to say, we've been trained in the internet to see its fulfillment in Web3. Now it's going to be peer to peer. So too have we been trained, not just in our assumptions of what's real versus what do we know, but how we communicate and where our identity resides in terms of medium is the message, the sign is more important than the thing signified, it's hyper real, and we're participating in these synthetic realities, either coordinated through consensus or individual. We've been doing that for like 20, 30 years now. And so when crypto comes along and gives it an economic model and gives it the real technology where you can own it, not just your picture, not use a picture, but own your picture and work in the synthetic world and enjoy fruits IRL and work IRL, crypto basically comes through with like a sledgehammer and says, this idea is antiquated to say like religious versus post-religious. Everybody along the long tail is going to be having this discussion now. And the question is, is it going to be dystopian where everybody's on a sugar drip or is there going to be like these bi-directional gateways? And part of the religious question is going to be around autonomy and agency. And part of it's going to be around how do you know what you know and what do you have control over? And then identity would be the fourth thing. So that's how I see the scaffolding. Awesome. So you, you just said something very interesting. You used the words, how do you know what you know? And I also think that one of the big things to look out for in crypto in the, in the next few years is specifically how crypto will converge with populist mass movement, mass movements towards the truth, because, you know, we have this massive crisis right now with, with traditional institutions, which many people will be aware of. You know, if you look at uh, survey data on, you know, how people perceive pretty much all of the big traditional institutions, whether it be in the mass media, academia, you name it, trust in these institutions is going down, down the tubes for decades now. And people just generally do not trust experts, elites, or traditional institutions. And you're, you see many populist kind of uprisings around what is real basically right now. And then this is sometimes dismissively called conspiracy theories, but really the, the, the phenomenon of conspiracy theories is just an, an early stage mass decentralized confidence in communities ability to discover the truth um, together in a decentralized way. And of course, it's going to look wild and crazy and stupid, and it will be stupid in the early days because we don't have it nailed down yet. But what it really testifies to most importantly, most importantly, is the drive for it, the taste for it, the, 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 the ineluctable, uh, insatiable demand for uh, really understanding what's really going on like that. People are never going to give that up. And no, people are not going to just settle with these corrupt institutions that are constantly sending messages, which are then shown to be false. Right. And so to me, I think this is the big, this is the big thing to watch out for with crypto because crypto is going to um, allow a kind of rigorization of this decentralized truth seeking process. And once that gets combined with the kind of aesthetic um, uh, mobilization, the kind of identity based or aesthetic 
mobilization of, of energy, as you see in something like, like QAnon, right? If you look at the kind of um, psychological uh, uh, prescience of, of whoever Mr. Q was, the way, the way that kind of people will learn how to push buttons of whole communities, of decentralized bootstrap communities, and actually gamify this kind of decentralized search for the truth. It's both identity, it's energy, it's aesthetics, it's it's everything. Um, we have not yet seen a kind of populist truth-seeking movement that really fundamentally leverages the technology of crypto. And when we do, I think that could be a real inflection point where people really start to see Oh, this is what the the essentially religious dimension looks like. It's going to be um, entire entire communities wrapped up in a kind of millenarian fervor that is about the truth and reality, and 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 it, and it's really going to take on these potentially limitless uh, degrees of of depth and significance and meaning for people's lives. Uh, that's what do you think about that? That is so good. I mean, to be full full disclosure, I mean that's like what I'm primarily interested in right now that's the i mean so the problem with crypto is like when you say you're early it's really tough like as a historian things happen slow and then fast right to get a sense of where you are in this flow right are we unwinding medieval hierarchy is the next thing gonna come up and swing back so many good points like so one there's like at a base layer the core thing of crypto is like disintermediation right i don't want the bank deciding what i want to do i don't want spotify crafting an algorithm and determining what i want to play I want direct access between me and other community members. And so like, that's like, there's like religious aspects to that for sure. And it's like, so fine. Absolutely. Um, the two pieces, like your, 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 what you know and your values, right? Like, so if you, if you say crypto is a technological means, just like last time to disintermediate that hierarchy, where's the locus of our hierarchy? Like, well, it's how we know what we know and what we value, right? Being able to define us versus that. I think the war of the religious wars, the next religious wars are not around legislation or regulation or even pl politics. They're around like this identity broadly conceived, meaning how do I know what I know and how do I value that basically? And the, the technology literally not only removes that, that mediatory layer, but it, it, it unwinds the hegemony because it, it gives me the, the decentralized way to communicate. Right now, if you and I want to share a radical view, one, it, I, I, it aligns the economics like, I love what you're doing, right? This idea of like radical ideas for an ac academic not to have to be beholden to a university that's, you know, measuring performance in like a weird, perverse way. Like you can now do what you want to do, right? So that's like the unlock of that at scale. You're an early front runner, right? You might be Luther, you might be Whitcliffe or Huss, but you're somewhere in the very early, right? Like that's going to be this thing that takes off over time. I was given a lecture at an elite Ivy League university is uh, the professor, double PhD, material science. Did, she's like, hey, um, I heard about this, this intellectual property research piece that was wrapped as an NFT that a DAO bought. And because right now we have a private equity guy running our university and we have this big pharma lab that's like running our lab. Like, I'm not going to name who this is. You can probably figure it out. Um, and so like the idea of being able to do independent research with what you're doing or hardcore, even material science, everybody's hungering for that. Right. And then the audience to say, I want to hear what you have to say rather than have it filtered through it. So what's the, what's the, what's the tools of hegemony that prevent me from being able to do that? Well, one is the platform, the communication, right? I, I have manuscripts right now. Twitter can say, I don't like you. Or if Twitter doesn't say that, AWS will say, I'll keep you on the Twitter account, but I'll just deplatform you, right? Or maybe Verizon, which they're starting to do, says, you might have your processing and your platform, but I'm not going to broadcast you. And so the idea to have decentralized 
tech stack, which allows me to share these ideas without being conspiratorial. It's conspiracy because it's marginalized, right? If I have the tech very much like Luther to outrun the tools of control, then all of a sudden that fundamentally changes. Then also to your point, not just energy, but what if I have economic incentive aligned around that, right? I, I let you and a thousand people like you and I have other people like not just fact checking, but I can see things on chain, right? Like I can, the the news, you know, the first thing they did on like Arweave or is Permaweb is put up the Library of Alexandria, right? Like it's, it's this different, it's this different like perspective on it. So yeah, that's a thousand percent, like absolutely. That's like the different political, the political line. And yeah, religious fervor in the sense of like the sovereign individual, just like recognizing enough. That's why I was talking about the onboarding of saying, hey, the dollar isn't really, that's like an obvious like Bitcoin or Maxi meme, but it's like, it's still powerful though, saying what you know is what is not what you know. And so having the platform to be able to share these ideas and then, then redefining in the middle ages, there's one truth. And then early on there are dissenters and heretics against that truth. Then it was cleavage. And then there were multiple truths competing because there's economic and communication infrastructure. What you're describing is literally that. That's so well said. That's so good. Oh man. Well, thank you. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad you, you think I'm onto something. So what is your intuition around whether we're going to see more and more fragmentation or if we're going to see re-aggregation anytime soon? Like, how, do you have any kind of frameworks or heuristics for thinking about that? Because I mean, one narrative would be that ever since the Protestant Reformation, it's pretty much been perpetual, long-term fragmentation, pretty much downward from the Protestant Revolution. And, and one line of argument would say, that crypto is just going to accelerate this. You're going to have a wild proliferation of many communities with their own values, their own perspectives. And you could imagine a world in which there's thousands of independent communities. They have their own religion. They have their own worldview. They have maybe they, they have their own economies and they're all happily, you know, peacefully uh, plugging away in relative isolation and, and fragmentation. It's one conceivable future that that seems plausible based on on the drift of technology in, in the mod, in, in the modern period. But another possibility is that there will be bundling and aggregation. You know, one one line of argument along these lines would be maybe what Bitcoin Maxis might propose, which is that in the long run, Bitcoin absorbs all of the monetary premia and it is kind of the the underlying sole kind of source of truth when it comes to uh, you know perhaps the, the entire global economy. Uh, you could tell other stories about about reaggregation and recentralization, uh, or or just kind of um, um, bundling. A, a kind of uh, shelling points emerge that absorb uh, much much of everything else. What are your intuitions or or heuristics for thinking about this question? You do your homework seriously. This is like the question, right? I li <laughs> I mean, this is so like historically, I look at it and say, okay. We're in this period of hierarchy for sure. And now it's unwinding. That's what tends to happen if you buy into this heuristic construct. But then it re-aggregates. So the question is, how quickly does that happen? Right? Like last time it took a while. We had financial decentralization and communication decentralization. The linchpin we didn't have was these NFTs, these on-chain rights. Like that was never synthetic or distributed. It was always... If you have property, it's on it's you may share an idea, but your the ownership to your property is still on a piece of parchment. That's an editorial hand that's like in some like nobles archive there that has to be interpreted through a court system. And so that was like one of the key pieces that was like very easy to to that was one of the first tools to control outside of language was, you know, that property. Right. And so like the idea of NFTs, they look stupid now. I get it. It's pixelated cats. But if you close your eyes and imagine 
that is being a contract that allows you ownership and participation in something physical or something digital and to be able to execute that on a smart contract without tools of jurisdiction, that that's that's a new superpower. That's something else in the game we haven't seen. If you believe they're not arithmetic, but hyperbolic, like that's interesting. So the question is how, where are we in this ticking and talking back? Like, yeah, it's like a really good question. I think about it in like a couple of different ways. Like one, this federated vision, not just Balaji's desert city, but like this idea of like federated city. If you look back at the wars of religion, you, that's what you had. You had federated cities. It wasn't this nation state. It's not like risk where you roll the dice and the next block goes these borders were porous and there were little bubbles. It was like a tide. Stuff would unwind. You could leave if you wanted to. There were like windows to go in and out. You know, there's like islands of this confessional identity or this political identity. Sometimes the political identities were split. It was like messy. It happened back and forth. And even in the U.S., like even like not in too long ago, there were different ideas around, you know, federated politics or at least practically. Right. Like we're in rural Kentucky or Indiana, there were like granges, right? And so farmers get together and they discuss that it was almost like public square, but also economics and how you do the pieces. And so like there always has been this federated. It seems odd to us now because one could argue we're hyper aggregated right now. So that's like part of it. Um, so there's always been this federated piece. Like I would say there's one way I try to think about it is, yeah, it was it was definitely religiously. You have religious fragmentation. You have this federation. In terms of like the political order, like one of the questions you have to this, the answer kind of depends on where you think we're at right now, I guess. Like I would say our religious aggregation and bifurcation just was replaced like post Bretton Woods with like world order, like aggregation. Right. Like so meaning we don't think of it as religious. But if you say, oh, first order is us, second order is them and third order who's in between. Like that gets pretty aggregated, even though you think it's like federated, like not just like neocolonial, but like that's like a very that's like a very that's your two by two for like interpreting the world. And so now all of a sudden crypto comes and says, I'm going to introduce this third axis, this Z coordinate. And so I don't think it's going to be technological versus non-technological. I think it's going to be like a new world order. This I'm sure I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but I think it's going to be like a new world order to, to quote whatever president where it's like both you're going to have blockchain versus blockchain, but one's going to be crypto and crypto is going to be self-sovereign in a way. And like you'll still have SEC regs on stable coins and blah, blah, blah. But it's going to be China basically turning over their fintech to like their version of Fang and allowing a beautiful UI UX in terms of like global adoption where people in villages offline, they've already done this really well, right? Like they're implementing blockchain beautifully on digital currency versus like Every, so that'll be the new poll. That'll be second world order if we want to use our perspective. Everybody who does that, China and you know, other people will hop on and say, we want to do digital currency as a means of control. We can drop it in your wallet. We can tie it to social surveillance currency. We can say, spend it here. Don't spend it here. Spend it on food. Don't spend it on entertainment. Like That's like, that's like one way to do it. It's not crypto because it's running through central coordination and it's damn well like not decentralized versus first world order, which from a crypto perspective would be like, no, that's going to be like decentralized, like self-sovereignty. Can you actually own your own keys? There'll be a spectrum within that, just like there's a spectrum within Protestantism. You had high Anglicans and you had radical Anabaptists. You'll have you'll have CFI, BlockFi, Gemini, Winklevi, Illuminati, and you'll have like hardcore like Zcash, Tornado, like Uniswap on one side. But I think that'll be it. Like the world orders will be who's doing digital currency versus who's doing crypto. And that's actually why I'm super optimistic on two fronts. One, the metaverse not just being dystopian. I go into these virtual worlds, but like NFTs this time allowing me wherever I'm at geographically 
to work in the synthetic world and enjoy the fruits in real life where I reside and vice versa, as well as like our ineptitude are kind of just jerking around like we're not going to be able to outpace China in terms of digital currency like our the U.S. political silliness isn't accidental. It's how petite functionaires work all the time. And it's like a it's a function of hegemony. It's not accidental. It's buying front runners time in terms of aggregation. But the beautiful part about it is it will not allow us to do digital currency like China. Like our ineptitude is actually not a bug. It's going to be a feature of the system. It's frustrating and insane, like when you have Gensler being pedantic or what have you. And you're going to galvanize the community by creating that Z coordinate. So you're going to have everybody, Ryan Selkis and these guys come out of the woodwork and they're going to be going crazy. Um, and maybe you'll have, who knows, Cruz and Yang running together. Okay, fascinating. That, that's, a, that's a brilliant uh, portrait of, of the possible future and how the, how the coalitions break down. Why don't you tell me a little bit more about your, your idea relating to blue collar crypto? I think, I think this is very fascinating as, as, a, as a kind of economic battery for, for IRL phenomena, you know, in real life uh, communities. You, you have an interesting kind of experiment uh, under your belt when it comes to what you've done in your locale. Tell us a little bit about your larger theory around how we might expect crypto to, to change the lives of normal people actually living and, and working in in their own physical communities. We're odd in the sense where, um, you know, we're in rural Kentucky, right? We're not in San Francisco. We're not in New York. We're not in, you know, Shanghai or what have you. And so we had built companies and sold them without venture capital, just, you know, kind of bootstrapping it up and even sell them to public companies. So have it like, you know, blue collar kids working second shift, third shift. That's just full disclosure, like background where we're at it, right? And so when you look at crypto and there's people that are absolutely right that are saying, hey, capital begets capital. And you, the question for crypto is, is it going to be like neo bankers just using better rails or is it actually going to benefit anyone down the long tail? And this gets back to your Medici question. What do I do? Well, one thing is you just switch your lifestyle over to being a product, to actually owning the things you use. Right. And so the, the basic thesis on crypto is at least that we have is. One, the stuff we're talking about will absolutely happen. It's like it's like strong form technology, weak form technology, like Chris Dixon, like uh, Silicon Valley. But like his idea of that is right. Right. It's like the strong form always wins. YouTube wins over all the guys trying to sell B2P uh, SaaS video processing to banks or whatever. Right. The strong form will win. But where it's a bit of a nuance is that retail can kind of only understand one thing at a time. So on NFTs, like OpenSea is dominating everything because you're like, oh, it's eBay for digital things. I can understand that. It's like Craigslist. It wasn't a bug. It was a feature to look like classifieds and be messy, right? That's what it, it drove retail. And so, so where we are right now is you have the crypto Illuminati doing trades. That's fine. And now the next unlock, and this ties to the political, is around NFTs. People saying, oh, I can actually make money not sitting at a corporate desk. I can make money around art. I think there's like value in that. Uh, at one level, trading becomes entertainment, like the idea that I, if I don't, if my Robinhood account doesn't really give me stock, if it's only an IOU anyway, I might as well trade something I like. So maybe it's like Pokemon or maybe it's the, my own identity or whatever I'm doing. Like that makes sense. So that's like this next blow up around that um, where I can collateralize that. But the bigger blow up is like as crypto touches in real life, IRL. And this is what like nobody's talking about. So it goes from finance to like art and rights. Like those NFTs as rights for things in the real world is one way to think about it. So my title to the car, the deed to the house, the, the ability to unlock, you know, uh, an experience, whether it's staying at a place or renting a place or using something is like one big piece that's just starting to come online. And then the other piece is crypto is an economic battery 
to solve what they call cold start problems in the business, right? That's why like the Helium thing's a great example. How would you build something to compete with Verizon? Because that's what Helium did. Verizon was gonna like sue them out of existence and now they're gonna like partner with them. Let's just not non-disclosure, I don't know, supposedly, blah, 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 blah. But the idea is how would you solve that? How would you get 200,000 people to run a box to take on like an aggregator? And the answer is you'd give them ownership in the thing itself, right? And so like now that literally allows me to remove all my cost centers as a person or as a small business operator, not a crypto trader, not coding, you know, old school language C plus or new school Python or virus, uh, like Solidity or Viper, like, but literally just running a restaurant. I don't listen to the thing that costs me 35K a year. I listen to the thing that's free and gives me ownership. And in that ownership, if I want to sell it off, I make more than I'm making selling my burgers, right? Or I run this building. We're down the street from Churchill Downs, which is it's an old bourbon bar from 1800s, you know, through Prohibition. And this community is named after this horse that won the Triple Crown. His nickname was Mr. Longtail. So we use that as like a wink and a nod. And it's like tied into the whole thing. And it, it basically drug fire, drug fire, going to get turned into a parking lot and then mini storage. And so we ran a box for $300 that anyone could get. Any, you could literally order it. You could Back in the day, you could 3D print it, I think. So even less than that. And it basically paid for the building and paid for the renovation, right? And so like that literally allows me to say, oh, I can run a restaurant and not have to pay rent. Then I can use, I can literally go through every one of my cost centers and, and do that like A to Z. And so the idea of like crypto, like empowering the long tail is it doesn't force me to learn a new skill in the sense of to become a coder if I'm like working on a line or if I'm driving an Uber to figure out how to like become a doctor basically or like a venture capitalist. I can literally do the thing I'm doing but replace my cost centers with the crypto versions where I now own part of it and then unlock the value I sink into a physical building and open it up for everybody. And so that's a that's that will be the massive onboarding when people aren't after the tech and they're not after the benefit of getting rich, but they're saying, hey, the essential workers that are like really valuable, but are the least paid. I don't have to like go to the government. I can actually like make more money, like being sovereign and exercising unlocking my own value. I don't know if that's what you're after, but it's right. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that's great. And I want to double click on a couple things there. One qu immediate question comes to my mind is, are the economics of helium such that you could, is it, can you still do this with helium or have the economics changed that it's not as profitable now or what? This gets into, this gets into like, not, what do they say? Not financial advice. Well, so the point is, even if you're not using helium, I like, we did helium because it was like, it was like the first thing, this is a couple years ago in 17, it was the first thing in the real world that we could tap on. And so the idea of like tying the metaverse and chaining it in real life and letting you go back and forth, the synthetic crypto world to the physical building, it's like super fascinating uh, philosophically. So early on, you could run a box and do, you know, five, six, seven figures out of it. And it depends on your geography. If you're in San Francisco and there's a thousand boxes, they have it hexed out. So if you have too many in an area, not so much. If you're a part of the long tail geographic distribution, meaning out in the middle of nowhere, like Louisville or Paducah, like you're over incentivized to do it in like non-cosmopolitan uh, areas. So number one, that's like one piece. Number two, there's 20 other things besides helium. If you don't want to use that, that's just like the most people understand that. That's the easiest. We personally think helium, like I would say it's still, you know, you're earning these tokens. They went from 20 cents to 27 bucks. And you say, all right, that's fine. That's like that did a gain. That's great. Um, do you, can you buy them? Yeah, you can buy them, but you can just run a little box or whatever. They were just doing that under IoT, what they call Internet of Things, like the scooters and UPS. 
that was like the unglamorous, unsexy Trojan horse just to get people to build the thing. And now that they have that, guys in the community, it's not a company, it's a DAO, right? So it's community owned. Think of it like a co-op or a grange. Uh, guys in the community were tinkering around. They're like, oh, we, we got 5G to work on this. And they're like, huh, maybe we should start broadcasting 5G. So they made a community initiative and they're doing it. And now the big telco carriers that were like going to sue them to oblivion say, it costs us several tens of thousands of dollars to build an antenna to deal with the city. We can just like kind of rent your network where you guys put them up in these windows. So now they've become that hasn't yet hit. It's hitting right now. And so it went from 20 cents to 20 bucks. We haven't turned on 5G yet. And then after 5G, there's Wi-Fi, there's satellite, there's near field things. So my personal opinion is uh, if you think of Web 1, Web 2 and Web 3, where Web 1 is dial up and Web 2 is, you know, Wi-Fi and maybe limited cell carriers and like Web 3, there's financial and technological stack components for each of this. But on the data credit piece, the thing that you can't tamp down and hit the kill switch on, we kind of personally believe Helium is going to be the uh, be the data credit for all of Web 3. And like there's 20 other things like Helium coming on in the next six to 12 months that are all focused on in real life. So Helium, I don't think is too late, but I damn they're back ordered like several hundred thousand units if you can get one. They trade on eBay or whatever, but they're just releasing 5G. But regardless, in real life stuff is coming out all over the place. So you're not limited by just helium. Okay, fascinating. Thanks for that uh, primer on that on that part of the space. So I, the final thing I want to ask you a little bit about is specifically how some of these first principles would apply to the situation of what we might call intellectuals or academics or however you want to conceptualize it, because that's something that you and I have in common. We're both academics who, you know, chose to, you know, seek our our are calling in the, the Wild West, as it were. And so I'm sure you've thought a lot about this. Uh, I have a lot of people listening to the show or watching on YouTube who are either academics or maybe they're para-academics. Maybe they're, you know, uh, thinking about going to grad school, but they're quite, you know, intrigued about possibly trying to make it on their own independently outside of institutions altogether. So a lot of people sense that crypto is important. They want to get involved. They, they want to start building. Um, intellectual projects in a way that leverages these new technologies. But I mean, even myself, who I've been I've been paying close attention to crypto for for years. I've, I've been I've been pretty bullish for a while now, and uh, you know I'm 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 pretty avant garde when it comes to this larger movement of defecting from the institutions to build on the internet. And I have to admit, it's just very it's very hard to build a a mental model that is. Uh, confident when because there's so much change, right? There's there the patterns are changing. The best practices seem to be changing all the time. The tools, the technologies. So I would love to hear just anything you can share um, from a kind of first principles perspective on how you think creators and intellectuals in particular should be thinking about actually making plays in this world, actually implementing strategies or tactics. What what does that look like to you? That's mm, funny. I was going to ask you that same question. So that's uh, you beat me. You beat me. No. <laughs> Well, I have theories. I, I certainly have theories, but you, you, I, I would love to know your perspective. Okay, there's a couple things going on. One is like plotting stuff out on an adoption curve. Like when I say we're early, it's just like I remember when I was, you know, I started out before I was doing a PhD in a Fulbright and the Cervantes Institute for Grant Study, I started out at JC, right? Just junior college, like night shift, doing the thing. I remember my professor, I'm super old, right? I'm not, I'm much older than like, I remember him saying, hey, there's this thing called the internet and you have to be really careful with it because it's not peer reviewed, right? And anybody can put anything up there and how are you going to know it works? And so that was like, that was the academic 
reaction to the internet at the time, right? Like just early on before you're doing WorldCat or whatever. And so that's just like, that's a bit of context to kind of think through that. And then as you go through the academic exercise, um, we're, we're, we're very early is the, the point of that story. I can even remember the internet coming on. And so like, how early are we as things develop when you're saying there's going to be, you know, truth and economic models around it and visibility and on chain, like all that stuff is true. Like the bigger the change, kind of the further out it is slow, 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 then flat fast. So to plot where we are on it at the time, like when my professor said that it was just my space. So people are doing twinkling cats at the time, right? Like we're, we're kind of in the twinkling cats phase, like right now, to be honest. So what, like, so one other thing I guess I should say is like, I left academics and then did startups, right? Like web 2.0, where you're getting like working with like some of the old Google guy, like some of the high and like, you're just in a startup, you're learning to fail, right? Academics train you to be precise and never to be wrong and like have a perfect dissertation. And startups are like, What's the saying? It's like Mike Tyson, you're getting in a street fight, like you never know what he's gonna do. He gives you a bite of an ice cream cone, then he punches you in the face, then he gives you a bite of an ice cream cone. You're used, used to you're used to being wrong, as wrong as you can all the time. So part of it's like directionality. Like academics wanna preserve image to preserve tenure possibility. And like when you're dealing with new technology and wild west wars of religion, like transformation, the people who are beholden to those institutions have the most to lose but also to the most to gain if they get early adoption to make the jump. But it's like psychologically, it means they're going to be wrong a lot of the time. So it freaks them out. So I'd say that's like one assumption just to think through for anyone listening. When I've had conversations with academics, it's always what you hear in the back of their that uh, in the back of their heads. So that's one piece. So right now, if you basically said, hey, if you just learned a little bit about technology, if you ran something that has nothing to do with your interest, but just instead of having to you could do research independently make a living doing any of these IRL crypto pieces that might not be tied to your research. Say if you ran a helium node and you're doing six, seven figures out of it, like that's, you would do that literally doing nothing. And then you're not beholden to, you know, tenure or what have you. That's not super fulfilling because it's not tied to like what your identity and what you're doing, but that's kind of trading coins and what have you. The next piece is people wrapping NFTs around it. And so for creatives, this is them capturing value through these platforms or through these value transactions. And it's easy to understand for art and music. So if you're an artist or a music or a craftsman, they get a bad rap because people are doing pixelated cats. If you look at the most successful ones, they're people that are not only tying them to causes, but are tying them to pre-existent proof of work. So there's NFTs like Pope or proof of attendance or proof of experience. And this would be like a way to think of like Beeple capturing on 30 years of work, right? It's not a flash in the pan for the first time I have an economic tool to capture the value that I had created. So that's like one way to think about NFTs. So you could just do crypto to pay your bills and do what you want to do. You could craft NFTs around pre-existing work you have done or are already doing. And then this next layer, which is just a, one other parenthetical note around that, around esoteric knowledge, you're starting to see platforms develop that are economically incentivizing esoteric knowledge. And what I mean by that, like just use one tactical example, like Upshot is a great example, like it's early, but this is what you're gonna see out of something like that, is um, NFTs have a problem in terms of price discovery because you have to sell it to know how much it's worth. And so you can fractionalize it. One other way to do that is to have experts, not just curators, but like real people who know things about things and have good predictive capability and deep knowledge bases on like a long tail of like esoteric subjects. And so you interact with one of these protocols 
and it records it on chain. And as you interact and say, this is high quality, this is low quality, this is meaningful, this is not meaningful, this is this, this is that, as the, as the data points revol resolve in your favor, you get an on-chain reputation and your percentage of downstream royalties and what have you. This can be on like 17th century like floral pick. I mean, it can be like on the most, es the more esoteric it is, the more difficult it is to get that price discovery, right? And so there's a whole world of stuff unlocking around current state NFTs. And then the third phase is this NFT is intellectual property, which I think is like, which is really where your audience will go. It's earlier down this tail, obviously, but like you're starting to see that. And so you're starting to see hardcore research, you know, longevity patents wrapped up as NFTs and then bought even by DAOs lately, which is complete madness. And so the idea of saying I can do any research, whether it's like political philosophy or whether I'm selling like getting liquidity provided on like a fractionalized NFT to be able to to like set up a lab <laughs> like and actually be my material science. If I do it in a group where I, I'm pulling things together through a DAO, I think that's where that ultimately goes. And that disintermediates education really fundamentally. If you believe that millennials are at the edge of the cliff, so every year education gets smaller and smaller and smaller. The odds like we're here in Louisville, I won't mention any universities, but if it's if it's six figures for room and board and your graduation rate's 50%, and then like, what am I doing? Well, I can get a Google certificate and have better hiring, but like, what if, what if I actually like learn through a DAO and capture the value through NFTs of intellectual property? That like opens up the world for every academic, but it's early. We're only seeing the first glimmers of that. Right, so if you did wanna be really early on something like this, what's your best guess on what would be the most sensible way to to actually take action on these things right now. So let's say, especially if you kind of lean towards the more academic um, approaches, your, your, your real coin of the realm is, is writing usually. And uh, the big NFT wave at the moment is very biased towards visual arts. So this is something I've, I've been thinking very deeply about, right? It, the logic is there, but the patterns and the norms really aren't there yet. If you're a writer or an academic and, and your work is primarily you know, the written word, should you be, you know, one, one, one possibility is you, you know, you can write a research article and you can mint an NFT cor corresponding to it. You can put the article as metadata for the NFT. You can use the NFT to gate access to the article. There are different possibilities about how you could um, actually put this into action. And that's where my mind starts to, it's just, it's, it's not figured out yet. It's just fuzzy. I don't have a strong conviction or a mental model around what is the optimal and most sensible way to do it. And I think if you're a sophisticated intellectual and you're really, you know, working for the long term, um, you don't want to just be hopping on bandwagons. You know, you don't want to like in a year, I don't want to look back and be like, I was doing the the twinkly kittens, you know? <laughs> um, so, so I'm curious, like concretely and, and, and in a very immediate actionable sense, if you're really an intellectual and you're trying to get out ahead of the curve right now and be that early adopter we were talking about earlier. Do you have any um, intuitions on what are the 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 longest term um, here here to stay practices that should be pursued right now? Good news and bad. Like the bad news is we're probably six months to eighteen months away from seeing what's happening in visual arts happen to music and then to text. That's going to be the the translation. Like literally, I was on the phone with somebody doing a version of this for text last night, basically, where they're doing downstream rights by citation. And so the more it's cited, just like music for like Blau and Royal, the more it's played, you can own like that piece of it. So that's like, 
So there's a whole wave of infrastructure. This is true for all of crypto too, right? The UI, the UX is horrible. Only right now in the next six to 18 months are we getting anything that's gonna allow anyone to even figure out. So that's like kind of where we are in the overall ecosystem. People do it for the art. You're seeing that moving to music with Audius, then you're seeing downstream rights with like Royal, and then you're starting to see text. And like the first, so you could tactically go to Mirror, start with Mirror. Mirror would be like the first example of that, right? That's That has some gating around voting. There's things besides Mirror coming out over the next three to nine months, but like that would be like one clear example. You can mint an NFT on your own, but you really want to have a platform or distribution infrastructure where you're not just minting it for a community, but like every, where you have downstream rights, right? Every time it's cited, you get like flow through just like you would on a play. So that stuff is coming out over the next year. People are building it right now as we speak. So that's like, so you may just have to like wait a little bit if you want to do that. Or if, in, in the interim, you can do something. But like that's that's a thousand percent right. Um, the distribution platforms right now, the state of crypto is everybody wants to do like, you know, graphic or written art. So they're doing like IP, like character development. Right. And so it's not necessarily historical or intellectual. It might just even be creative character. And they're doing writing around it. And we're like, how are you going to distribute it? And it's always going through centralized aggregators, basically going back to Disney, Marvel, Netflix, whoever. So right now, people are just starting to build decent. We have to wait for decentralized distribution. When you have decentralized distribution, then you can write a piece, then you can have downstream rights and you can tie it on through an abstraction layer. That's the thing you're waiting for. When you see that, you know, it's like green light go basically. And the intern, I think there are a couple things you can do. So one is anytime you have a text platform coming on, you can, I just, I just would frame it up to the audience. Like, Hey, we're playing. It's early days. You know, I don't necessarily want to be minting my own NFTs to do that, but I can play on mirror. The next thing that comes out after mirror, or I might even like think about social tokens and social coins, which are like a little bit of a, there's, they're still very early, but if it's in an experimental phase, it's funny when I was doing that Ivy league lecture, all the kids were like, all they wanted to hear about was like social tokens and coins. It was like very surprising. Cause like they saw it as like the absolute extension of NFTs, like bet on me as a stock and my future proceeds of what have you. Like, again, the technological infrastructure, it's just like the NFTs for royalties. We talk about it as if you get royalties out of a song or out of a piece of art. But the truth is we don't have the, the connective abstraction layer between those platforms. If you want downstream royalties, it has to be on the same platform. In the next six to 18 months, like people projects are underway connecting those. And so the same thing with social tokens. You're, you can do it and you can tie on downstream royalties for investors and liquidity behind you. But in, artistically, this would be like Rally.io or it would be, uh, oh man, what's the big social? There's a few of these platforms that are doing it, not just artistically, but like in. Yeah, I have a social token. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. Other, you know, like, exactly. Yeah, so yeah. you could do yeah. that. But it, as you well know, it's like limited because you don't have connection into like what's the output of it. You need distribution in there. That'd be one other piece. The other thing you could, I would wait for the distribution. But in the interim, what I would do is I would I would pull. I know it's like trendy to say Beeple and I'm not even that much of a fan of his art, but like what he did was the right way to go about it to like do proof of work building a community. And then when you have the distribution, flipping it on in the right way, right? And so what you could do is you could build a community, not just through NFTs, but I might, if I were an academic or intellectual, really be thinking about the the, the proof of attendance and proof of experience and proof of work tokens. Like people did a proof of work virtually just by every day doing it. But you could be doing that and building an audience and basically saying, hey, everybody that listens to this has a proof of attendance, right? And starting to construct some pieces around that. And then you could tie in liquidity if you had it around. I mean, I think it's going to force a lot. Some intellectuals are just going to be for entertainment and thought development and personal development. 
But I think, and this is a dirty word in academia, but I think sometimes what intellectuals do has a lot of like immediately salient, like social and cultural and political action, like lines. And so tying it around that is also very interesting, right? If I'm doing research on carbon sequestration saying, hey, I'm going to use NFT liquidity providing for paying for farmers planting trees, or if I'm going to do social like exchange of free ideas or dissent or looking at both sides of an issue, like tying NFTs around that, like that is an object I think is a good intern step. But long story short, like you want to be building that community through these different mechanisms, like while you're waiting for distribution. And then when distribution like is at scale, you, you hit go. Okay, fascinating. That's that's very good. So, and when, just to be clear about what you mean when you say waiting for distribution, you're talking about some kind of platform that kind of catches lightning in a bottle, and there's decentralized sharing and discovery. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. And there's different flavors of this. Um, so, in doing that for text or for writing, you can if you want to DIY it on your own. You basically have to take it around an idea that's tied to action, and then you can have liquidity around people that want to support that, right? So Justin comes out and says, hey, I don't just have a Justin coin, but my thing is about like looking at both sides of an issue and dissent and like being able to like see through media hegemony and like learn how to critically think, because I think that's important in the coming wars of identity or something. This is something I'm playing with, right? And like, I'd be like, oh, yeah, instead of donating to the AARP or United Way, I'm definitely going to put liquidity behind that thing because I want to see like... That's like one way it has to not just be you. When I say social token, people always think of like me as a thing. It's almost like you're using it around an idea or an object. So that's one piece of it. Um, where, or for the carbon sequestration, not just doing carbon credits like on Chia, but saying, no, no, how do I make it win-win to use a cliche? The farmers are using Monsanto. How do I pay them to plant trees? Okay, I actually have an NFT that's like generative art and it's tying into a puzzle and the community coordinates around this. And when we unlock something, People are donating, will donate, like providing liquidity and like you're actually paying farmers to plant trees. And now farmers are like generating more economics than like, you know, spraying chemical. Like there has to be these you have to academics would really have to think through the mechanics of how that works. But in the interim, there are platforms just now emerging. Text is it always goes art, then music, then text. But we've seen this with art. It's just starting with music. So let's look at that. So with music, you're starting to see audience, right? So audience is like. I can build my audience, I'm white labeling it, they give you the data, I see who's doing what, and you can craft your own economics around, like they're listening to music, not listening to text or reading text. And then I can price that differently, or they're starting to implement downstream rights, or like Blau just did this through Royal, right? So it's it's probably a year or two away from really hitting, and he's transparent about that. He's saying, hey, I'm an artist, a creator, I don't have a record deal. I don't want to have a record deal. I want to have the community subsidize me and then own part of the creation. And then that acts as a currency within that economic platform and off platform too, if I have the infrastructure, wherever it goes to. And so in order to do that, I want you to not own a social token in me, but a piece of the royalties of the stuff I actually create, right? So like you have bits of that in Rally, Royal is coming on for, for visual arts, Royal is coming on for music. The, the thing I'm saying is like there will be a text version of that or a decentralized infrastructure version of that that will allow you to do text after it goes from visual to, to um, music. That would be my prediction. And that's what you might want to wait for. Or you just craft it on your own, which I think the tools coming out to craft, by the way, just full disclosure. I, I don't want to get into like the crypto blockchain wars or whatever. We're multi chain. So just like so just for example, there's something called Solana. And on Solana, there's an NFT minting thing called Metaplex. 
And what's being released on Metaplex is something called Olaplex, which is like Shopify for NFTs, right? And you mint it for like nothing and like anybody can do it. If you can run WordPress, you can do it. And so like, and it'll, it will allow me generative and it will allow me tying into community construct. So like there's a whole new suite of tools, like kudos for you for getting in early because you understand this a thousand percent better than anyone coming in even like two days later, right? But like the stuff that's coming out for you to do if you want to DIY and craft it, I'd say you have to think about how it interacts with the people to benefit them who wants to put liquidity behind it. By the way, anything in like reading through media and looking at another side of an issue and having this political access for not just being tamped down, that's like catnip. And so thinking about like the practical applications of some of the intellectual work, which you can think about it from religious or philosophical or like how I interact with other human beings, it kind of forces everybody to be practical. But if you don't want to do that, if you just want to do peer play, these platforms coming out that allow you like downstream royalties as well as social tokens. And like there's a next generation of platform that allows you to do that a lot easier than kind of what you've been doing where you're kind of chicken wiring it. You know what I'm talking about because you've done this. It's not easy, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'll also... That was fantastic, but I want to also resurface um, something you said earlier, which I think reapplies at this part of the discussion, which is kind of just giving things away to people. Um, you, you had I, I really like what you said before, and a few other people on the show in recent weeks and people I've been talking to have kind of also been converging on this idea that, you know, it's like the so what I'm thinking, for example, is, you know, I have this social token. I'm going slow with it. I'm just experimenting. It's just kind of there for me to play around with. And I'm, I'm still kind of developing my mental model of what this is really going to unlock for us. And until I have that strong theory, I'm not going to be like hyping things very hard because I, I, I genuinely am not high conviction yet on, on, on what this is really all about in the long run. Um, but one thing that's coming into focus, you said it before is like, I might just start, for instance, at the bottom of each of my weekly newsletters, it could just be like, I'll give you money. <laughs> Basically, I'll, like I'll pay you to read. I'll pay you to read this. Like that's the real, in that's the real, rat the real radical inversion here is from users being the product that I'm trying to, um, you know, collect, exploit, monetize to my users or readers actually being recipients of the rewards, uh, beneficiaries of the value that I'm creating. And so I'm starting to see that more that. It, while we're waiting for the patterns and the platforms to shake out, um, in the meantime, what you can, I think, really trust as a heuristic is to just use these technologies out of generosity to distribute, to give for free. And in a way that, that that's maybe the, the safest and uh, both the most generous, but also the most practical in the long run way to be an early adopter while the patterns and platforms are still shaking out. If you believe crypto is really about social coordination, and it's yes, it's this economic model, but you have to figure out how how to fit it and make it work. And doing anything new in technology, much less social coordination, takes some kind of jiggering around. If if that's your construct, then like it, it, it's it absolutely behooves what you're saying is a thousand percent. And back to what you had said earlier, you know, around different ways of discovering truth. So instead of just view count, right, amassing view count, actually using some of these new technologies like to discover truth, right? And so you're seeing pieces of this mechanisms people may hear but not know what they are, right? Like quadratic voting, right? Or prediction markets. Like, oh, that means if I'm a whale, I can't dominate a vote, but I only have so many, maybe I have 10 votes and I can use them all on one I something really, really care about, or maybe I distribute them. It allows, like, they're like in governance tokens or something else. It's like mini Petri dishes for democracy and how I'm going to incentivize different pieces for control, running it out in simulation in real time. And so I have these different mechanisms. You could play with a social token on like, quadratic voting or on like governance or on, it, it isn't just like aggregating view count. And so like it's it's and also kudos to you. 
like academics were hardwired in to like never make mistakes, like just embrace other size entrepreneur and be like, no, I'm going to play with a bunch of stuff and it's going to fail. Right. Like, and I'm going to take, I'm going to wear that as a badge of honor, like not just you, but everybody, because academics, I, they don't want to do that. Right. And intellectuals, I don't want to be wrong saying, no, 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 I actually like not to get all like Steve Jobsy or whatever. It's like, no, you really do want to, you want to like learn from your failures and play with it. And like, that's, that's totally true. And the idea of giving away these mechanisms allow you to give away. Right. So just like, Attention by view count is the old economic model in Web 2.0. You could say, oh, it's coins dominated by whales. No, it's not. You can program these things. You can program them to say, if you're, I'm just going to use a musician because it's the most concrete thing for people to think about. And then you could apply it to newsletters and what have you. You could say, hey, whoever bids the most on this NFT, this NFT might not be a piece of music. It might be co-creation, right? It might be co-writing. It might be co-content creation. The object morphs just like in the renaissance it's not top down and dictating it it becomes co-creation in different ways and you can define the constructs of that right so i can do co-creation around that and like maybe it won't just be whales doing it maybe i'm also going to assign governance tokens for whoever was earliest right so whoever was the earliest news letter subscriber i basically go through and do like a reverse economic incentive and like i'm incentivizing the earliest people or i'm incentivizing the 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 most views right or the most like you can you have tools to say, what do I want to create value around? Not just sharing. The old world is your sharing, right? But around kind of co-creation. And even the experiments of this you're doing with the community and you're, you're co-creating as you're figuring this out and say, what do people really want? And what do I want to do? And how do I want to interact with them? That's why the generative stuff, it's like people are like, co that's why generative is hot. Not just because it's like artsy and weird and technology, but because people get to co-create on chain. When you mint that, you're part of that, you're part of that process, right? And so saying in the intellectual realm, what can I co-create? Maybe it's just voting on topics. Maybe it's like, maybe it's backing different people. Like you can almost think of like an esports version of like intellectualism, right? Like how do I like create this, like this, like this bi-directional, like interactional doorway through this, not just reading, but like these different forms of co-creating. You can go through topic format, like uh, uh, collaborative. You can go through your whole like typology on it. And then you can say, okay, now, how do I want to incentivize or give unlocks through NFTs to like access and experiences and ownerships, including downstream rights on that? Right. And that might be that might be biggest voting. That might be generosity for sure. And then you can sort of fine tune and tweak the generosity and say, I want the guy, whoever subscribed, whoever was my earliest backer, I want to disproportionately. And you can do that retroactively. You don't have to start today. You can go back through on chain like that's the stuff if I, I would be playing when I say build community to unpack that. That's all the stuff I'd be playing around about, right? Do a drop and do it. Anybody doing a newsletter, do a drop and say, who are the earliest? Do a drop and say, who disagrees with me? And that's what also I should unpack. When I say poke token or proof of attendance protocol, I can basically give a badge for different things, right? I can have like a, a gamified, who's like the best disagreeer with me, right? Who's on the opposite, the guy who wrote the Twitter thing on your book, scathing or whatever. You say, you know what? I put you up as a gold badge, right? That's the type of disagreement I want. Or this other guy, he's disagreeing in the wrong way. It's not intellectually honest, right? Like doing that sort of stuff, having that typology, I think is fascinating. And then what you could do is like play with like interactivity among those badges and typography, right? You get five good disagreements and you get into the governance, right? Oh, that's like a different type of like democratized, like, you know, Bill of Rights or what. Like, anyway, I'm going on and on. But you get the idea of what I'm talking. When I say build community, that's what I mean. Yeah, it's great. It's great. I think that's all very uh, fruitful and inspiring. It gives uh, people a lot of different uh, parts to think about. And I, I do really like this convergence on 
kind of generosity as a as the short term default, the the free distribution of things uh, to try to reward whatever aspects of of your community or your audience you want to reward, and then that the distribution of those crypto assets will then become the bedrock from which you could build larger and other things as the patterns and the platforms shake out. But as a way of getting started, I, I really like that. So that really kind of came into focus for me today, listening to, to you talk. So I appreciate that. Josh, we're coming up on two hours. So I want to thank you so much for your time. You've been very generous with, with your time today. And I'm very grateful for that. This was an amazing discussion. I think my audience is going to love it. And especially the academics and intellectuals out there in my audience, I think we'll take a lot of um, you know guidance and inspiration from, from uh, your suggestions. So just want to thank you very much for coming on. No, thank you for doing what you're doing. Like you're at the front of this. What you're doing is super important, not pandering, but it literally is one of the most important pieces, figuring out how crypto can empower this sort of discussion is like the great unlock for everybody along the long tail. And so, yeah, it's not easy and obvious. And if it were, it wouldn't be that meaningful. And so like, thank you for doing what you're doing, sincerely. Well, I appreciate the kind words. That means a lot to me, really. And uh, yeah, it's early, so it's confusing. It's confusing for sure. And it's, 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 uh, it is kind of um, discomforting in a way because um, we're not quite sure how things pan out. So it's not quite sure how someone should allocate their, their effort and their, their resources especially if you're doing, you know, kind of long-term intellectual work. But I think you and I have shared the conviction that this crypto stuff will change everything and it will set the patterns and, and the opportunities uh, moving forward. So I'm just like we talked about today, just, I'm just trying to be early and really build a genuine kind of first principles model of what's really going on and how people should should place their bets. And so you've contributed a lot to that today. Now, they thought the world was ending with Luther's time. So this is like, this is easy peasy. And like, if you do this, why not just try this, right? Like, I mean, what do you have to lose? Time, you learn something. But like the crypto piece is asymmetric benefit. And like, I guess I just leave people with this thought from a historical perspective, like rarely do you, people during the most substantive transitions, like these long durée, deep currents, they're not on the surface, right? And so rarely do actors recognize the magnitude of the order when they're experiencing it. It's only after the fact, like the bigger the transition, the further after the fact that people recognize it. And and I think at least from my personal opinion and hearing you as well, there's more than enough evidence to say that this is this like fits all the the criteria and kind of meets this heuristic construct that that would at least have me really seriously exploring that. So I, I really appreciate the time to take a minute and I appreciate this moment sincerely. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end, so you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review. And it'll send you an Apple Podcasts. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show and I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening and thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.